Yeah, the name of that map, by the way, is the Smoking Bones Caves. And uh, I wanted to get your take on that, Rich. Where do you think they came up with that? Uh, I don't know, barbecue place? (laughs) 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 Uh, You could edit that out if you want. I just wanted to. (laughs) No, that's going at the beginning. Listening to the RF Generation Playcast. The Playcast is the place where Single Banana and I, Gregost81, discuss the monthly community playthrough games selected by us and played by a community of gamers on RF Generation and social media platforms like Twitter. Every episode features input from the community and maybe some guests. For episode 47, we took a look at a cult favorite tactical RPG from the PlayStation era. Konami may be pretty hated nowadays, but back in the 90s they were killing it on the PS1. In fact, they were slashing it open with such ferocity that a veritable geyser of blood sprang forth, spraying anyone within a nine-tile radius. That must be what inspired the death animations in this month's title, Vandal Hearts. We'll discuss whether this obscure PS1 title is worth digging up, or better left in some kind of confusing space-time vortex forever. You can listen to this show on Podbean and iTunes, where we always appreciate a favorable review. On Twitter, where at RFG Playcast... Rich is at the single banana, and I am at Mr. Sean Gray. Most importantly, be sure to log on to rfgeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show, or perhaps even be on the show. Thanks again for listening, and now on with the playcast. <laughs> So, Sean, I got to know, you and I have fairly eclectic tastes when it comes to music and film. Do you like 80s ninja flicks or like some of the older samurai flicks? You know what? I might, but I'm not an expert in it enough to know exactly if I am. That's a weird response, I know, but the (laughs) cheesy ninja, kung fu, samurai, all that stuff, you know, I know I've seen it and I've probably seen more YouTube videos about those kinds of movies than I've actually seen the movies, Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm certainly not an expert by any means. Well, when I was growing up in the early 80s, I used to go to the video store all the time and just beg my parents to get me ninja flicks like especially the uh, shokasugi ninja flicks like revenge of the ninja enter the ninja ninja three 
Rage of Honor and Pray for Death and things like that. And then I also remember each Saturday they would play these sort of like kung fu flicks. Probably around the same time that I was watching a lot of the kaiju films that I would watch on Saturday mornings, they would have this thing called Kung Fu Theater. And so I would watch a lot of uh, Shaw Brothers films, and uh, I've really been kind of getting back into that and collecting those. And if you follow me on Twitter, you would have probably seen that I had several pickups. And what's awesome about that is I have a buddy who I had gone to uh, graduate school with that lives in town. And he's also into those things. And it's one of those kind of moments where, you know, you're just having like a random conversation. You just find out that both of you were obsessed with Ninja Flicks as a kid. So we've been kind of reintroducing ourselves to those and uh, kind of getting back into that. That's pretty cool. You'll have to recommend some of those to me uh, if I can find them streaming or I have a new way to get my hands on media, which I'll explain later in pickups. But, you know, I like Asian film in general, so... I definitely love to check some of those out. Well, you know, they're kind of hokey, you know, and silly compared to a lot of stuff that I'm typically interested in. But it's a lot of fun, and uh, I'll definitely send you a list. Just check out some of the films that I mentioned before, and then I'll send you a list of a few Shaw Brothers films, too, that uh, you definitely need to check out. Okay, where do you place uh, Lady Snowblood? That's a movie that I, I love. I don't think I've seen that one. I'll have to put that on my watch list. Oh, man. Yeah, that's a really great flick. Now, when did that come out? Was that like a 90s or 2000s film? Uh, It was actually in the 70s. Um, Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, it has a Criterion collection, which is funny because it's like a trashy hack and slash kind of (laughs) type of movie. Uh, But it was very influential. And Quentin Tarantino basically like ripped Lady Snowblood off with Kill Bill. Kill Bill, yeah. And it's, it's very evident as it usually is with Tarantino. So that sounds right up my alley, man. I'll definitely check that out. You would love it. (laughs) Very cool, man. Well, other than Ninja Films, I've been watching a Netflix series that I've really been pumped about. And uh, the wife and I kind of binge watched it because we got sucked into it. And that hasn't happened to me in a long time. The Killing was one series that I got really sucked into and uh, Luther. But um, this one is sort of a crime drama. Have you heard of uh, Mindhunter? I've heard of it, and I'm sure my wife has watched it because she likes that kind of stuff, and she's a big fan of Netflix shows in general. What is it like? Well, basically, it's a show about the FBI in like the mid-70s. It was before they had coined the terms like serial killer and before they were using like psychology and before they were able to like start profiling serial killers to help find them. And so it's about these two guys who basically started this unit out of the basement of the FBI and were going around interviewing these captured killers and kind of coming up with this language. And uh, it's it's very, very good. It's really interesting. I think it's something that you would even dig because it has like a really cool historical um, aspect to it. It's based on a true story, but I'm sure a lot of it for TV is a little bit fabricated. But uh, yeah, definitely check out Mindhunter if you get a chance. Uh, is there anything that you've been watching, getting into, or maybe some podcasts you've been listening to lately? Dude, I listen to podcasts all day, every day, but uh, many of them are political and i don't think this show is the place for my political beliefs but if anybody (laughs) wants to dm me on twitter uh that's at mr sean gray i would really love to talk to anybody about anything that's going on in the world or history or any kind of political stuff i think people 
in today's atmosphere are understandably either very shrill about politics or uh, wanting to get away from it and not participate at all. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really sad. And I, I do want to engage with people if it's a worthwhile endeavor. So if anybody wants to do that, feel free to DM me on Twitter or DM me on rfgeneration.com. I'm one of the sad people that doesn't like to talk about politics, so please don't DM me at all about that. <laughs> <laughs> I've got too much going on to uh, invest time in uh, what I found, for the most part, being a lot of pointless conversation. Though you and I have had some great conversations together. I think, for me, it's just finding the right people to have conversations with. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, there's some people I avoid those conversations with for exactly that reason, and one of the things that I've learned from listening to podcasts in general is that the uh, kind of long form dialectic is making a comeback, which is pretty awesome. Um, yeah. Like I do listen to the Joe Rogan experience, which is one of the biggest podcasts in the world, uh, depending on who the guests are and if it's something that interests me. And I think, you know, what he's doing in, in the space is really one of the reasons for the kind of slow decline of the mainstream media and... I'm not going to just cheer on the decline of the mainstream media just for the sake of it, but I love seeing new technologies and new art forms come out, and I am really enjoying what I'm hearing on the, the airwaves, so to speak, with long, intellectual, well-thought-out conversations. Yeah, and in that sense, it's kind of hard to edit those up a lot. You know, when you have like long conversations of dialogue like that, whereas some news outlets can chop things up and give you what they want to give you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's a good way to listen. I haven't thought about that before and you might have to check some of that out. But, you know, it's not that I don't care. I'm not one of these people who just doesn't care. I like to make my vote count, but I feel like a lot of times that, uh, you know, I'm usually drugging the conversations just for the sake of people wanting to argue. And that's really not my M.O. and not why I want to, you know, have a dialogue with someone about certain things. I've kind of taken the path to sort of avoid it. But anyway, on um, happier news, let's talk concerts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've got a little note here on the outline. It says more effing concert tickets. Wow, that's awesome. You had quite a few from the last show. And yeah. Before you go, I'll just jump in. and I want to say uh, the They Might Be Giants concert that Eileen and I went to was amazing. They're so good. It, it really oh, like revamped jealous. my appreciation of that band. Uh, and they were just really good. So Yeah, I think that a lot of people think that they're kind of silly and goofy and just not worthwhile but i think if you listen a little deeper to what they're saying and their lyrics they're pretty sharp people and uh yes they just go about it in a goofy way uh which makes it more fun i picked up flood recently which i uh, i think you probably saw i posted on twitter great album and uh there's a really cool youtube video if you look it up there's uh this rapper named open mike eagle and the YouTube interview is about how They Might Be Giants was a big influence on him because their music sounds goofy and fun, but their lyrics are actually like pretty dark at times. And he kind of analyzes the lyrics. And I've listened to some of his music and he borrows a lot of They Might Be Giants lyrics. And it's really, <laughs> it's, it's really, really cool. Well, cool, man. I'll check that out. Uh, what's funny is um, 
I asked my wife, I said, "Hun, do you still have that Flood CD from They Might Be Giants? And she said, uh, yeah, let me check. I'm pretty sure I still have that. And she looked around and uh, looked through her stuff and she was like, you know what? I'm pretty sure that was on cassette. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> so that, that kind of dates us. And so I had to order it off eBay. It's something that, uh, you know, we really love. They did a vinyl of it several years back, but it's fairly pricey. And I'm not going to go that route uh, just to listen to They Might Be Giants, but uh, definitely have the CD and the uh, CD changer downstairs. So we're really enjoying that right now. But I'm glad you had a great time at the show, man. Yeah. So what uh, new concert tickets did you get? Your schedule is just packing up, man. How do you find the time? How do you find the babysitters? (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy, man. And it's getting crazier. Starting in March, we now have concerts lined up through July. One a month. Uh, That's funny. That's awesome. It's really awesome. Uh, We didn't go to a concert in February, but... We did go see Nico Case. I don't think I mentioned that on the show last time. I mentioned having tickets to see her, but that was a great show. The wife and I enjoyed that a lot together. It was a really kind of more easy listening and being parents. We were yawning quite a lot because it was, you know, past nine o'clock. <laughs> but at the same time, we had a blast and it was great to get out and see her. She put on a fantastic show, as always. We got some tickets locally to see an artist named Gillian Welch, who I've spoken about before in terms of talking about Nico Case and Lucinda Williams. She's a female artist, kind of does, I don't want to say it's country because it it sounds kind of country, but it's not country in the sense that you think about these days. It's more like Americana. She plays uh, with her partner. His name is uh, Dave Rawlings, and they play in a band called Dave Rawlings Machine. And she plays in his band and then she does her own music and he plays back up for her. So they just kind of alternate as far as touring. And so this is one of her tours. And I've seen Dave Rawlings Machine before live and I really like them and I love Gillian Welch. And so we have tickets to go see her. I'd mentioned to you that uh, I was going to surprise my wife with some tickets. I just couldn't keep the cat in the bag, man. Her birthday is June 19th, and it just so happened that Paul Simon's doing a farewell tour, and uh, he's going to be playing locally on the 19th. Now, are you a Paul Simon fan at all, or a fan of Simon and Garfunkel? Uh, not really. Uh, it's a little mellow for my tastes, and I know some of their stuff is poppier, and I don't dislike it. It just sure. It's not something I listen to on purpose, you know what I mean? Yeah, We're pretty big fans, so I thought that would be kind of a cool surprise, and uh, like I said, I kind of let it out of the bag, because I didn't want her making other plans or anything like that, and just to be honest, I was just a little too giddy about it, so uh, (laughs) uh, she was was really excited when I told her, and uh, it's just going to be a neat thing to be able to go out on her birthday night and uh, go see Paul Simon in his, well, what is reported to be his last tour, so uh, yeah, pretty pumped about that. And then... (laughs) (laughs) thirdly the descendants are coming by oh nice so um (laughs) they're playing late may very close to us in raleigh probably about an hour to an hour and a half away and i saw the date and i was like "Ugh!" my wife's family has a beach house and they're doing like a beach vacation that week with the family so the saturday night event is out I was so depressed. I was looking at the tour schedule. That's all that was listed. And then my wife calls me on the phone. She's like, hey, they're playing in Asheville, which is a little closer for us. And they're playing on Thursday night. She was like, what do you think about maybe going to that show? 
And I was like, that's going to be hard to do, but I'm probably going to take a day off work on Friday before we go to the beach or go to the Thursday night show in Asheville, drive back down to Charlotte, pick up the kids and drive the opposite way in the state to the beach just so that she and I can go see the Descendants. (laughs) So... Mm. Kind of crazy, but it's a band that's very dear to both of our hearts. Like I said, we used to make mixtapes for each other and stuff when we dated. And one of the first mixtapes she made me, she put a ton of Descendants on it. And it was one of the first times I had heard of the band other than hearing one of their songs, uh, Silly Girl, on a broadcast that Pearl Jam did several years ago when I was in high school. So, uh, yeah, man, should be a great show. And I know you had a good time at yours, right? Yeah, they were really good. I think you'll really enjoy it. And I hope they come around here again because my friend Corey, uh, of course, missed that concert. And he just had to give the tickets to me to do what I wanted to do with. So we brought another co-worker with me. But hopefully my friend Corey will get to see them because he's the one who really wanted to see them. <laughs> so, Well, you should check out the schedule. I think that they're coming back around again to some more places. And uh, I believe Houston was on there. I don't know how far that is from Austin. But, uh, you know, if, if he's interested in going to see him, it might be worth a trek, though the state of Texas is enormous. I know I've driven across it. Yeah, Houston, I believe, is about four hours. But he goes out there for Astros games pretty regularly. So it's not a big deal for him. Very cool, man. But uh, yeah, that's it, man. Getting crazy with the concerts still. And, uh, you know, some other things are popping up. Journey's coming with Def Leppard. And uh, I thought that might be a kind of cool show to take the kids to. Def Leppard was my first concert when I was in fourth grade. My daughter's now in fourth grade. And then my kids, I took almost two years ago, to see Journey, and that was their first concert. So it'd be kind of a mingling of first concerts for the family, which would be kind of a fun show to take the kids to and, you know, safe enough. Yeah, you actually just reminded me. There's one that I'm thinking about, which is the Smashing Pumpkins with their almost original lineup. It's basically everybody except Darcy. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, and they are coming around, but they're playing... The Irwin Center, I believe, which is a stadium downtown here. And I I don't know. It's probably going to be very expensive. Uh, that was my first concert I ever went to was the Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, now, which tour was that? I'm curious. Uh, it was Melancholy. And it was right after the keyboardist mm-hmm. died and they kicked out Jimmy Chamberlain. The concert was postponed for a while and it was up in the air whether or not it would even happen. But I ended up seeing them with the replacement drummer at the time. But it was still, it was my first concert. It was amazing, you know. That's funny, man. Allison and I went to that same tour and had the total opposite experience of being like one of the worst shows I've ever been to. Oh, really? Well, Billy Corgan, back then he was known, I don't know how he is now, but he was a real prima, kind of like an Axl Rose type prima donna. Yeah. So what happened? Well, the problem was, man, is they did five encores. yeah dude it was so messed up so they did like 1979 and they would bring kids and families on stage to sing and it was just really kind of hokey yeah and then they did like five encores and like the last one they did was just them coming out and playing noise like we literally fell asleep in our seats and we were one of the only few people there wow It was like that time Andy Kaufman went on stage and read The Great Gatsby from front to back, you know? I mean, it was like, why are you trolling everyone? It was (laughs) 
one of the worst shows I've ever been to in my life. But I did get to hear a few songs from some of their earlier albums, which I was really happy to hear, Rhinoceros, which is one of my favorite songs by them. Yeah, me too, man. I love that song. (laughs) I have Siamese Dream in my truck. I love that album still. But uh, yeah, it was one of the worst shows I've ever been to. The opener was awesome, though, and it was one of the reasons I went. Uh, A group called Fountains of Wayne opened up for them. I don't know who you saw open up, but uh, that was one of my uh, favorite bands back then. I loved that CD. I think their hit song was Radiation Vibe or something like that. Yeah, so two things. That was kind of a drag about the show that (laughs) I went to because the opener was supposed to be garbage. But when oh, wow. they postponed the show, they changed it to Buffalo Tom. I don't have anything against Buffalo Tom, but even back then, I would have rather, rather have seen Garbage. Sure. And fun fact, Fountains of Wayne is actually named after this weird store in Wayne, New Jersey on Route 46. <laughs> and I've been there. It's the kitschiest place. It's like this walk-through Christmas museum, and they sell all these weird things i don't know if it's it's probably still there i mean it was there when i moved away and it's kind of a landmark but uh it's just this weird place that's funny i think what was their big hit wasn't it like stacy's mom yeah that was them too that, yeah i didn't i didn't love that one but I, no, i'm I didn't with either. you their first album is like just that perfect uh power pop sound very hooky very catchy uh love that album yeah, it was great. It was great seeing them on that tour, too, man. I love it like when we're talking and we kind of cross paths on things, actually going to that same tour. That's pretty awesome. And having two different experiences. I, I went to college in Chapel Hill, and we have a place called the Cat's Cradle, which is sort of a very notorious place that I think even Sonic Youth sings a song about Chapel Hill and uh, you know, yeah. kind of the Cat's Cradle. And um, they actually announced a show for Smashing Pumpkins when I was in college the day before they were going to play. They just kind of showed up to play a quick show. And they did an all-acoustic set. I didn't go, but my roommate went, and he said that they didn't even get on the stage. They just set up like right in the middle of the floor. And everybody in the place just kind of sat around them. And they played uh, you know, a lot of their old stuff, and he said it's one of the coolest experiences he's ever had at a show. It was really intimate and really neat. So maybe it was just that the big stage you know, just didn't really appeal to them, and it was just kind of a little too much at the time when I saw them. So I don't know. It's weird. Actually, one of the first Joe Rogan episodes I listened to was Billy Corgan because I saw a YouTube clip of it and it seemed kind of interesting and it was a good gateway into that podcast. But he's a little bit of a, a weirdo, kind of a tortured artist. He's a normal guy, but what a life he had and what great songs he wrote. I was thinking about this today. We've talked about the band Hole before. Yes. And he wrote their best album, Celebrity Skin. That was all him. I don't know all him, but he wrote most of that album. And I think well, that's one of the Well, let's not call so it good. their best album, because <laughs> I think Live Through This is pretty awesome. That's probably one of my favorite albums still to this day. And pretty sure Kurt wrote that album. <laughs> yeah. Um, Live Through This doesn't age well for me. I Again, I like pop music. I like a hook, a melody. Yeah. Like Live Through This is a lot of raw emotion. It's a lot of maybe not the best kind of nostalgia when I hear it. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I can't argue with you as far as what is their best album, because they actually are two very different things. So we'll agree to disagree on that one. But we can agree that Hole is actually a valid group. They you know, get dissed by a lot of people, but... I think they're a very valid and great group. I've seen them before live, and uh, you know they put on a great show. 
Yeah, there's a really good documentary on uh, Patty Schemmel, the drummer. It was on Netflix a long time ago, but it made me really not like Courtney Love. And I used to kind of stick up for Courtney Love. Like we talked about on the show last month, the rock star mentality and separating Mm -hmm. the art from the artist. But man, Courtney Love just seems like a not a great human being. So (laughs) yeah, I don't know. She has the same birthday as me. So I... (laughs) <laughs> I always kind of <laughs> joked about like, oh, she's just, you know, she's a rock star. Leave her alone. She's awesome. But it doesn't seem like she has her life in order for the past four decades. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about some video game news. Actually, I want to jump in here. There's something I forgot to put in the notes. Well, then we can't cover it. Oh, I mean... all right. Forget it. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I want to give a shout out to my friend Corey for making our new artwork. Uh, you can see it on our Twitter. And he is a budding graphic designer. I work with him right now at our day jobs, but he does a little freelance on the side for people. And he did a really nice uh, donation of yes, very generous, generous work of a new logo and a new banner on our Twitter. So check that out. Rich, you already hit up the merch table with that stuff. Yeah, man, I'm creating some merch. Uh, I made a uh, coffee mug out of his design uh, with our web address on the back. And then I even made myself a mouse pad. And uh, yeah, it looks great, man. It's an awesome new logo. I'm happy that we freshened things up a bit. And a big thank you to Corey for doing that for us, man. I haven't met you before, but uh, just want to let you know that I really, really appreciate it, man. It looks fantastic. Hell yeah. can go into video game news <laughs> all right <laughs> so uh one of the things that was reported recently was that red dead redemption 2 was coming out in october 26 of 2018 is this something you're interested in sean yes i'm interested in it from the perspective of having played the first game and the zombie game the undead nightmare expansion game and liking them a lot kind of in the same vein as when a new Grand Theft Auto comes out. I want to play it because I like those kind of games. Yeah, I haven't played any of the Red Dead Redemption games, though I do have them listed as possible playthroughs. I would like to play them. 
I like Rockstar games. I'm not really into the Grand Theft Auto stuff just because I don't like the themes. That's just not my bag. If other people like it, that's awesome. But uh, I really love Bully. And, uh, you know, something with the Western theme, it would definitely be something that uh, I think I could really dig. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a game that I will definitely keep on the radar, something I would be interested in and probably one that I would pick up, you know, when the price dropped down enough for that. But uh, definitely want to check out the uh, the older games at some point. So. Cool. Yeah, I'm down for that. The last thing I wanted to mention in news, this isn't really like news of things coming out or, you know, video game news, but this is episode 47 for us. And we're almost going over the hill with uh, episode 50. It's right on the horizon. So I always kind of get mixed up when we do a recording. So I want to make sure that I get this out there before it's too late. What we're asking for our 50th episode and something I would like to have to sort of edit into the episode is, um, you know, maybe one to two minute audio roast from people who want to just, you know, say hello, want to like take some jabs at us, whatever you want to do from our friends out there who are listeners to our friends on social media. I would really like to push this and like insert those things into our 50th episode to make it, you know, really special. What do you think? Yeah, this could be fun. and you know what guys if i have to do a little bleeping i'm okay with that too so just uh send it uh however it comes out and uh we'll get it into the show very cool now as far as news do we want to touch on the billy mitchell todd rogers twin galaxies scandal or are we going to leave that alone oh no go ahead man if you want to talk about that let's do it (laughs) So I didn't prepare a ton, but it's basically come out that, you know, all these guys, like if you've seen the movie King of Kong, all these guys who in the 80s set all these video game records, it's starting to kind of fall apart like a house of cards in that a lot of these records weren't real. And there's different scenarios for each one that's been refuted. And I mean, the evidence I've seen is very compelling that Twin Galaxies was not really doing the right thing as far as logging and and having these records stand with any kind of evidence. So it's tricky to talk about because I'm not an expert and I've, Mm -hmm. you know, honestly only watched a few YouTube videos. But I will say that Now I feel better about the fact that I didn't shake Billy Mitchell's hand when I saw him at the convention. I knew there was something wrong about that guy. (laughs) (laughs) And I think anyone who's seen King of Kong probably would say the same thing. I knew something was up with that guy because as as documentaries go, typically they go with letting the cameras roll and, you know, you want to capture footage and you just let the cards fall as they may. But With King of Kong, I felt like it was one that was very much in villainizing Billy Mitchell. Yeah. And I always felt bad for him for that because I'd always heard really good things about Billy at conventions and how he was so nice and just willing to take photos with people and and sign things and just a really good guy. But uh, when you put things like records into question, it it not only puts the egg on the face of Billy Mitchell, but also Twin Galaxies and... um, you know, is a video game player, but not someone who goes for world records. That's not why I play video games. Mm-hmm. But it is kind of concerning when you do have that sort of thing pop up in video game culture. And it's sad if it's true. I haven't watched any videos like you have on the evidence, but that's pretty damning if people have figured out, um, you know, a way that he's sort of manipulated a score 
or there's something kind of going on at Twin Galaxies that they've been kind of covering this stuff up. Yeah, I would definitely encourage people to go do your own research on this. But what I saw was, you know, again, it was pretty compelling, the things I've seen. And hopefully, you know, Twin Galaxies will come out and do the right thing. They have rescinded some of the records already. So Mm -hmm. and uh, Todd Rogers got his Guinness World Record taken away. So, I mean, those are actual things that happen. So where there's smoke, there's fire in that respect. So uh, we'll see as it develops. And uh you know, if it's worth talking about next month, if there's more information, maybe I'll dig deeper into it. Yeah, I'll definitely have to start tracking that. All right, cool. All right. Do we want to move to pickups? Yeah. So now here's the thing. I know you have a ton of pickups. I have none, but I have a philosophical conversation. So <laughs> either you can do your pickups or I can tell you what I'm doing. <laughs> it doesn't matter, man. I'll let you pick. All right. Since yours is more fun, I'll go first. So everybody who listened to last month's episode will know that my New Year's resolution was to not spend any money on video games with certain provisions that we made for the podcast and everything else. So not to spend my income, let's say, on video games because I spent upwards of four or five thousand dollars on video games last year. And looking back on that, I decided that that money could have been much better used elsewhere in my life. So having said that, first I want to shout out everybody who gave me a very, very warm reception on the article that I published on this idea that I had and why I want to do it, what improvements in my life that I want to be able to make because of this. Actually, Kevin Buried on Mars retweeted that and it gave it a lot of traction. A lot of people commented on it and tweeted at me. And that was really cool because sometimes when I post what I think is going to be a contrarian idea, like saying I don't want to spend money on video games on a video game collecting website, part of me, I want to tweak noses and part of me wants to be controversial, but I actually got nothing but a good response for this article. Mm -hmm. So that was really, really cool. And I just want to thank everybody. So I did a really smart thing, if I do say so myself, and I took my wife to our local public library and got library cards. Now, we do not have video games at our library like Addicted does. He Mm -hmm. posts in small scores games that he gets at the library all the time. Our library system does not have video games. However, I have found that using the online system to browse the book catalog and they do have cds and movies so i can browse music uh, and movies and i can put books on hold i can put them in a wants list and i found that doing this kind of browsing is satisfying the need that i used to get that would cause me to go on amazon or ebay and buy stuff So whatever the dopamine release of searching for a new item and discovering something new and reading a review and then putting it into a list that says I'll go and look at it later, or then literally putting the books or the CDs on hold at the library so I can go pick them up, it really scratches that itch. So rather than having a void that wouldn't be filled we found a way to fill it for free. And I didn't even realize, like, I just thought, let's just go get library cards so we don't have to buy so many damn books. Cause we, we have that <laughs> habit of when we want a book, we just buy it. And then you, yeah. much like video games, you got a pile of books you haven't read instead of video games you're, you're not going to play. So yeah, my wife and I went and got library cards and that's my, 
that's my score for the month and uh i'm enjoying it a lot it's it's it feels really good it feels cool and uh it was a smart decision very cool. I thought you were going to say that you could get video games transferred from another library to your library. I know they do sort of like interlibrary loans a lot of times yeah, in no. some places. They don't have them in the Austin Public Library system, but for anything else, I can do that. Like if it's in the Austin Public Library system, I can have it sent to my branch. And I did that for the first book that I checked out and it took about a week to get there. So I'm about halfway through that book. So I already like tagged a bunch of other stuff that I want sent to my library so that by the time I'm done with this book, I'll be ready to go pick up some other stuff. I got a book and a bunch of music CDs and a movie and all this cool stuff because they actually just built, and I haven't seen it yet, I haven't been there yet, but I've heard from people who have like a massive main public library in downtown Austin. It's supposed to be very state of the art. There's like holographic guides that you can talk to in the library that will tell you like where to go and stuff. So I really need to go there and check it out. But we have a small little branch about a mile from our house. So that's our home base for now. Very cool, man. All right. So uh, I guess I'll get into my pickups now. The first thing I picked up was from Play Asia. I got a copy of Battle Garega for PS4. This was a game that was originally released on the Saturn, only in Japan. And it's very, very pricey, like a few hundred dollars shooter. And so I was able to pick it up, you know, on the cheap on PS4. It's a Korean release. And uh, without the region lock, it definitely plays on the PS4. And it's definitely a shmup that anyone interested in those type of games should check out. For my birthday, I got a copy of Guiana Sisters Twisted Dreams Director's Cut on PS4, and uh, that was from my wife. It's a nice little platformer that's gotten some really, really great reviews. I've never played a uh, Guiana Sisters game before, have you? I have not, unless when I was playing a lot of emulation, uh, checking it out. I know the original was like a carbon copy of Super Mario, Mario Brothers, Brothers. Yeah. yeah, but they kind of evolved into their own thing after that. Yeah, it uh, looks like a pretty cool game. It's like one of those games where you can kind of switch out between each sister that has different abilities and things like that. So uh, definitely interested in that platformer. The next one, I believe, is exciting to you. Attack on Titan for PS4. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I got that from uh, a Gamefly sale. I was waiting for it to drop under 20 bucks, and I think I was able to get it for like 15 on one of their sales. Highly recommend joining Gamefly not for just getting games to come and to play at your house. I don't do that at all. But if you just register on their website, you get an awesome link to some great sales. Sean, you and I, we always uh, let each other know when one pops in our email uh, so we can go and uh, scavenge it and you know see what's out there. Of course, I guess I'm not going to be getting that email from you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd have to finagle a way to justify that. So according to my rules, if I sold something on eBay and had money in my PayPal, I could use it's my true. PayPal debit card on Gamefly. Yeah, I could give you some money for a certain uh, Super Nintendo game that you said that you were uh, maybe interested in getting rid of at one yes. point. So. Probably have more stuff than that, too, that I'd be willing to let go. I was looking at your wants list on RF Generation today, as a matter of fact, kind of just looking around, seeing if I had anything I'd be willing to let go of. We'll talk. All right. Cool, man. <laughs> As everyone knows, I had some money that I won from fantasy football pool early in this year. And I'd mentioned like my first grabs from that and the last podcast. But I was kind of torn between 
wanting to finish off my Dreamcast shmups. There are two that I still need. Or working toward finishing off the uh, PS1 RPGs that I really want to add to my collection. And so I thought I could get a little more bang for my buck in going the PS1 route uh, with the RPG. So I picked up Ogre Battle, Ark the Lad Collection for PS1, and Cardia for PS1. Now, I do want to mention that Cardia actually came from eBay. I got it for what I thought was a good price. But the two other PS1 games, along with a copy of Galarian's that I just got in the mail today for a great price, came from a group on Facebook called Filthy Game Rooms. And if you haven't joined this and you have a Facebook account, I highly, highly suggest that you join this Facebook group. The members there are awesome. When I got Ogre Battle and Ark the Lad and even Galarian's, the guys that sold them to me took tons and tons of pictures to show me the condition of these games. You know, typically with Facebook groups, you just never know unless you know the seller or you know someone who's in that group who also knows the seller, as um, the case has been for me and some other deals I've done on Facebook. But uh, these guys made me feel right at home. I usually don't advise doing this type of transaction, but I had two great interactions and two great scores from uh, this group on Facebook. So it's one that I do recommend. Um, and then, I know I said I wasn't going to do this, but I picked up a copy of Shadow of the Colossus on PS4. Yeah, man. Now, I want to revisit, because you said you weren't interested in it on a few different occasions. Yeah. So, I know you're playing it, and you and you probably want to talk about it and what are you playing. But what changed your mind to actually even purchase it in the first place? Well, I had a bunch of gift cards that I couldn't really use for any old games. And so, I was able to basically just say, well, what new game do I really want right now? And I didn't really have anything on my list as far as things I'm looking for right now on PS4. Okay. That was pretty much the reason I did it, because I was able to get it for 10 bucks. <laughs> you know, after all my gift cards. Nice. You know, it made that decision pretty easy for me as far as, you know, what to use those gift cards on. Cool. And the other pickups I had locally, uh, fairly cheap RPG, Chrono Cross. This is one I haven't played before. I know it's, I don't want to call it a sequel because I don't know if it is the Chrono Trigger. Do you know? Yeah, from what I understand, it's like a pseudo sequel. Now, you got the Black Label version, right? I did. What's cool about Chrono Cross and a couple of the Final Fantasy reissues is I believe they're still in print. Like, if you go on Amazon.com, you can get a copy of Chrono Cross. It's greatest hits, but you can buy a brand new copy of it. Black Label is going to be a little bit harder to find and more collectible, of course, but it's pretty cool that they're still out there, you know? Absolutely. That is really cool. And uh, I was able, like you said, to get the Black Label. I got it for less than 15 bucks, so I was you know, very happy to make that deal on another RPG that was on my wish list. I also picked up a copy of Crypt Killer, which I just found at a local game store, along with Unholy War. Crypt Killer is a light gun game, and Unholy War is more of a turn-based sort of strategy game, but not in the sense that Vandal Hearts is. Like, it's not really an RPG. This is more like sort of a board game, something more akin to, like, Warhammer. The guy who sold it to me said that this was actually based on a board game, he thought. So, uh, yeah, really cool to have that. 
And this other PS4 game I picked up very recently with a GameStop gift card that my wife had gotten me for my birthday. It's called The Sexy Brutal. Do you know anything about this game? Yeah, I've watched a lot of YouTube videos on that game because it looked pretty neat. I don't have it, but I think you would like it based on what I've seen of it. Yeah, from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's one of these scenarios It takes place in a casino and these characters are dying one by one and your job is sort of to do different things to try to save these characters in this casino. And it's sort of like Groundhog Day and if you fail, you have to start over. Yeah, it sounded almost like Shadow of Destiny to me. Like you have to kind of relive the day and figure it out. I think that's what it's like. Yeah, and it looks cool. It's got some great graphics. They're weird enough where it really, really appeals to me. So uh, I picked up that game with the gift card that my wife gave me for my birthday. All right, so these last three picks are kind of biggies uh, that I'm really happy about. I got a copy of Ease Vanished Omens that came from our buddy from RF Generation Silver 80. And that is on the Sega Master System, so that knocks the amount of Sega Master System games I need for a complete set down to 14. Now, you've done some deals with Silver 80, right? Yo, Silver 80 is the man. Like, (laughs) he's almost on a league with Steven as far as deals I've done with him and quality pieces I've gotten from him at great deals. Very nice guy. Yeah, I'm subscribed to his thread. (laughs) When he bumps that thread, I go right to it. (laughs) Exactly. Pops right in my email when he bumps it, and I go right to that thread. Yeah, if you're not a member of RF Generation, you're not using the collecting tools, I mean, that's just one perk. The other perk is the forums in our sale thread. There's some great people on there that you can trust that are selling games and you can actually get some really good deals. I felt like I got a fantastic deal on this game and just want to throw a shout out to Silver 80 for another wonderful deal. I've done a few with them in the past. My next pickup was another fantasy football grab. It's my last one. I'm now officially out of money from my fantasy football (laughs) winnings. But this was a big one for me, and it's a game that you've played before I know and that you thought was really cute and really liked it, an RPG on the Sega Genesis. I got a loose copy of Crusader of Senti. Yeah, that's very cool. I like that game a lot. It's very Legend of Zelda-esque. I think you will enjoy it. Yeah, it's a really beautiful copy, very clean. I just could not justify the cost of cardboard for this game. The game itself, I can justify because it's a good game. It's not so extravagant that I couldn't purchase it, you Mm -hmm. know, like the little Samson that I got to finish off my NES collection. But for cardboard and for this game, I couldn't do it. With Genesis, I love the clamshells. I love the hard cases. I always try to get those when I can. But I'm not going to not purchase a Genesis game just because there's no box or manual. And especially if that game is cardboard. Genesis cardboard is not the best in itself as it is. It always gets roughed up so much because storing it and shelving it and that sort of thing. So it's just not something that appeals to me. I understand how it appeals to some people. But paying $350 to $400 more just for cardboard and a manual... Yeah. yeah, I just, I can't do that. So, uh, yeah, very happy to have this game and can't wait to play through it. 
I think it might be something my kids really enjoy playing with me and yes. you know, watching me play as well. Yes, they will. They're the little animal buddies that come along with you throughout the whole game, and they're really cute. And I talked about this on the show before because I played it maybe last year, you know, early last year. But the way the the little sprite of the animal like hovers around you is really, <laughs> it's really cute and funny. It's almost like a flag on a flagpole just floating around you. It's adorable. Your kids will love it. It's awesome, man. Can't wait to get into that. And then my final pickup, uh, you know what this is, of course, and members of our site, I posted some pictures on our small scores thread. I, wow, this is a game that I did not expect to add to my collection. I went to Retro World Expo this year, and I, of course, finished off my Nintendo collection, and someone asked me, well, what collection are you going for next? And I said, well... I was going through my stuff, and it looks like after the things I picked up at Retro World Expo, I've probably got 15 games left to finish off my Sega Master System set. And the first question they asked me, they said, are you going for that U.S. version of Sonic the Hedgehog? And I said, what are you talking about? And they Mm. kind of relayed the story to me. And uh, those of you out there listening to this, some of you may know, some of you may not, so I'll go ahead and do this. From what I understand, this game was available in Germany. And what kind of happened when they brought it over to the U.S., this was sort of at the late life cycle. What they did, instead of replacing the inserts with a new UPC, they took a rectangular sticker and put it on the back of the clamshell over the other UPC code. And this tends to be the only difference between the Sega Master System version that is considered PAL version and compared to the version that was released for the U.S. Yes. And so I just got this information in October and I said, well, I probably won't do that. People told me how much that game was worth. And I said, yeah, I'm not really interested in doing that for Sega Master System set. I'd really like to have the counterpart to the NES as a set. But at the same time, it wasn't something I grew up on. I did not grow up playing Sega Master. So fast forward to last week, I was off for President's Day. I went out to a game store. I went down the aisle, I looked to see if they had any new Sega Master System games, and lo and behold, in their case, they had a copy of Sonic. And the price was a little more than what you would pay for a European version of the game. And so I said, well, let's just take a look at it, and went to the counter, and the person helping me said, well, it doesn't have the manual. I said, that's okay, I'll take a look at it anyway. Got it out, looked at the front, looked okay. Opened it up before even looking at the back of it. (laughs) Saw the cartridge. Cartridge was pristine. Very nice. And then I slowly, while biting my lip, turned it over and I said, don't wrap it up. I'll eat it here. (laughs) Of course, if you're listening, you know what I found on the back of that clamshell. And uh, man, I almost jumped out of my skin, especially for what I paid for this game. Let's just say I got a really, really... Really hot deal and uh, put it in the chat for RF Generation. Just picture of it and got a few holy shits. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really pumped to add that to my collection. It's a pretty cool thing. I was excited about it that day because I had the day off. I was by myself. My wife came home. I told her about it. She said, you going to sell it? <laughs> so uh, I said, nope. So uh, yeah, 
I'm down to 13 games left for a complete Sega Master System collection, and that uh, is truly one of the best finds that I have ever had, and I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. What an oddball thing to just find in the wild when you're actually looking for it. What a crazy (laughs) thing to have happen. You know what I mean? Like... Yeah, I mean, I wasn't like actively like searching for this game. I just saw that it was in the showcase and asked about it and just happened to be what I was looking for. Now, if it were any of the other versions of the game, I don't know that I would have bought it just because the price was a little more than what I would have paid going through eBay or somewhere like that. So I would have probably held off on it. Right. But uh yeah, man. What a great day. I mean, it was really hard to keep my stuff together when I got outside and not jump around <laughs> or, you know, do anything like that. But uh, really cool, man. It's pretty awesome find. That's awesome. Are you going to try and get a manual for it? Yeah, it's the same manual and everything. They're all in English. So, uh, yeah, definitely going to complete it. I've already looked into it. It won't cost much to get a manual. So, uh, yeah, definitely going to uh, finish it up. That's awesome. Now, does that become the most valuable thing that you have, if you don't mind me asking? I'm just curious. Yeah, probably. I was thinking about that the other day. So, yeah, probably the most valuable game that I own now. It was Little Samson. Oh, yeah. But, yeah uh, they're probably in the same ballpark. Mm, yeah, very similar. Very yeah. similar ballpark. So, uh, so yeah. That's nuts, man. I mean... It is. <laughs> <laughs> See now, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy though. True, true. And when you <laughs> found that, that actually got me thinking: What would I do if that happened to me? I'd have to break my own rules if I found that. Yeah, you would. But I could probably justify it by buying it and then immediately selling it, or you know, selling mm-hmm. it to you. You know. Yeah, take advantage of me. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously pure luck, but it just kind of goes to show that if you're going to be in this hobby, you have to know your stuff. If you're trying to collect a complete set, especially, you got to you got to know what the things are to look for and, uh, you know, what the value of things are uh, as you're out. So I'm lucky. I'm very lucky in that had I not been given this information in October, I would have never known. So, yeah. Awesome. dying to know i'm gonna shoot what are you playing straight to you because you gotta tell me Oh, okay <laughs> you gotta tell me about shadow of the colossus man 
Can I save it for last, though? Because I've been playing a few things. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course, of course. I'm just dying to know because, like, as we've said, it's your favorite game of all time, and, and you didn't want to buy this at first, so I'm just... Mm-hmm. And you're posting screenshots all over Twitter of it, so <laughs> I know somebody... They're beautiful, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what else are you playing? All right, man. One game that's been like a hit in our household. My son's playing it. He had a friend over last weekend, and they are really digging Windjammers. That's the limited run games released for PS4. It is a fantastic game. We've been having so much fun with Windjammers. Uh, of course, my son, I didn't really realize that he had a competitive streak because like with sports, he's not very competitive, but man, he gets mad with video games. It's kind of awesome to actually see it come out in him, but he's kind of been a little butthead about it sometimes. But uh, yeah, man, uh, Windjammers is a blast. I ended up beating the game, put it on um, my beaten games for the year. So I played through it and it's kind of a sports game with a, a disc. Do you know anything about it or... Uh, have you played Windjammers before? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I know about it. I haven't played it, but I've seen a lot of footage of it. I know what it is. It's an old Neo Geo game, right? It is. It's a lot of fun and just a really cool release. And I think I mentioned before when I got it from Limited Run, I ordered two copies because my buddy Cameron, I knew he was going to want a copy. And so um, that's what I you know, ended up trading him for Breath of Fire 4 and a, a little bit extra cash. So, uh, yeah. The other thing I got, I got from Play Asia. It's a game called Unepic for PS4. Is this one that um, has crossed your radar before? No, I've never heard of it. Okay. Well, what it is, is sort of like a Metroidvania-style dungeon crawler. The story's kind of set up where you're playing a game of D&D one night with your friends. You go to the bathroom, and all of a sudden the lights go out, and you're now in a dungeon, like, fighting for your life. You've been Mm. sort of magically transported there somehow. And so you can get different weapons to level up. So it's definitely an RPG where you can put points in certain areas, magic, potions, swords, maces bows, daggers, tons of different weapons. It's a really, really cool game. I'm enjoying it. It's tough. It's a platformer, and there's like traps and things like that. The graphics are kind of these really kind of kick back to like NES pixelation type graphics. So they're good, but they're not like super well defined like you would expect in a newer game. However, the speech bubbles and things like that that have your character's head and other characters' head are like well-defined and and very beautiful like animation. But uh, yeah, it's kind of a Metroidvania style. You're crawling through like a castle kind of area. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I've been really, really enjoying it, but it is very tough. And my only complaint I would say about the game is the play area, even on my large screen TV, is very small and it's hard to make out things sometimes. And that's it's a bit annoying. But uh, other than that, it's sort of the same complaint I had with Cave Story. It's a really neat game, I would say. Maybe check out some video on it, see if it's something you might like, and uh, get it if it is. Cool. And then the final thing I've been playing, of course, what you're waiting to hear about, <laughs> is uh, Shadow of the Colossus on PS4, which I recently got. This is a game that when I played on PS2, my kids watched me play, and they are still hovering around the TV. Dad, play Shadow of the Colossus. Dad, you're going to play it? You're going to play it? They love it. I mean, they think it is the best thing ever. They love watching me beat these giant colossi. I will say, the game is beautiful. I mean, it is stunningly beautiful. The only issue that I have with the graphics are the main character, Wanderer. Mm. 
his facial animations get a little kind of cartoony and not as realistic sometimes. And I don't really like the way they did his face. But that would be my only complaint graphically about the game because it's stunningly beautiful. I was kind of under the impression with this game that it was a remake, but I thought that they might add some new things to it. Right now, I've down, let's see, there's 18 Colossi. I think I've taken out, or no, there's 16 Colossi. So I've taken out 11 of them right now. And there's really no difference at all in gameplay. And in fact, it's a lot easier of a game. Do you remember playing this game and fighting like the sandworm that you have to use the bow on the back of the horse and hit it in the eyes? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the toughest battles. And they've done some really nice things to improve that to make it a lot easier. Now, I got to say, I'm playing through this game knowing how to take care of all these colossi. So it makes the game a lot easier for me going through this time. But the controls are much better. The mounting and dismounting of the horse, they've very much simplified. Uh, it works every time now. You don't have to worry about that. So there are a lot of control issues that they have worked out with the game. But as far as adding anything to the game, don't expect any types of additions to the game. To me, that's a little disappointing. Everything is where it was on the other game. It's just everything's much more beautiful. But what I really liked about the PS2 game is it really pushed the boundary and the limits of what things could look like on the PS2. Yeah. And that's what made it so special. With this, it's just another PS4 game that looks great. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And so I'm not upset that I have it. I'm happy that I have it. It's beautiful. And for people playing it for the first time, I think this is a very much easier gameplay and control-wise game to play. And I think anybody getting to it the first time would really, really enjoy this version of it. And I would say pick it up. If you're a fan of the classic PS2 game like I am, if you just like having the different versions and you like something that looks a lot better, I would say pick it up. The detailing is is impeccable, like just the, the hair and stuff that you grab onto that are on the Colossi or, you know, like the, the battle where you have to grab onto that guy's beard. I mean, it, it's so awesome. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not as blown away by it as I thought I was going to be. I don't mean to sound disappointed or anything, but uh, it's really cool. I'm happy to be playing. I'm definitely going to finish it, but uh, it's not quite what I was expecting in a remake. Okay. No, it's cool to get your take on it. I know Shadow of the Colossus is one of those games that you only get to play it for the first time one time. You know what I yeah. mean? And your <laughs> No, I know, yeah. <laughs> your impression of of that playthrough is going to be cemented as the definitive experience even if sure. a better quote-unquote version comes out. So, uh, what you're saying makes absolute sense. All right, man. What you been playing? Uh, so I mentioned last month that I was into World War One history and that I really wanted to play this game, Battlefield 1, which is part of the Battlefield franchise, which I am a fan of. And they made a World War One game, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. Most people, myself included, I didn't know anything about World War One until about two or three months ago. So to know that this was out there, I, I really knew that I had to play it. And I was fortunate enough to be able to borrow it from somebody. So I played through the campaign of this game and I enjoyed the game, but I really felt like they really dropped the ball with representation as far as which 
countries were involved. Just real quick, I mean, the Triple Entente is France, Britain, and Russia, and the Central Powers was Germany, Austria, Hungary, and uh, the Ottoman Empire. And there were many, many other countries involved in the war. But the campaign of Battlefield 1 is split up into five little mini-campaigns. And of those, three of them are British. One is Australian, which is British. I mean, no offense, but at the time, Australia was part of the British Empire. So yes, that's not really a stretch there. And then one mini-campaign is you play as an Italian. I was really put off by that. The Russian and French forces lost the most and second most amount of people on the Allied side. And it's really weird that there was no French campaign, especially considering that aerial combat was kind of introduced in World War I or popularized mm-hmm. or, you know, this was very cutting edge technology, mechanical flight. There is a flying campaign in this game, but you play as a British. And I really thought, and this is something I got to shout out Josh Metalfro, because in my article, I didn't make any suggestions. I just wrote like, here's why France and Russia at the very least should have been in the game. And here's why they should have at least considered having you be able to play as the central powers like Germany or Austria-Hungary. Josh kind of called it out, like, what would you do? Like, what suggestions do you have? Those weren't exact words. And and as a matter of fact, he wasn't even really saying that. But I (laughs) took from that, like, oh, I didn't really say, like, what they should have done. But here's just one example, and then I'll shut up. The French Air Force was a very important part of World War I. So rather than having a campaign where, where you're in the British Air Force, they should have done the French Air Force. It would have been, you know, I know it would have been different. I know it might have cost more money or whatever goes into game development, but it would have been worthwhile. Um, the French were very cutting edge. They actually came up with synchronized gear, which was that the machine guns could shoot through the propellers. That changed the game. And I think they really could have tapped into that rather than doing the campaign they did, which was that there's some like con artist who poses as a British guy to fly a plane and he gets pulled into the war. I mean, the whole game was like, it was well done, but like, and again, as Duke Togo, and I, I, again, I got some great comments on this article. I'm really grateful for everybody. Chris said, well, maybe they just didn't make a game for us history buffs. And I think they kind of halfway did. You know what I mean? Like they, yeah. they did a really good job with the campaign where you play uh, in a tank squad as a British. Now that makes sense because the British introduced tanks to the world in World War One. So mm-hmm. to have that makes perfect sense. But again, just one small example of what they could have done was have the French Air Force and then you're representing France, then figure out a way to get Russia into the game and then think about what it would entail to have the central powers. Because I think that could be very interesting because we look back at World War II and we think bad guys versus good guys, you know, Nazis mm-hmm. yeah. versus allies. World War I was not like that. It was very different. It was a lot of confusion and naivete about technology and warfare. And I think they had an opportunity to really shed light on what that conflict was. 
so anyway, I, um, <laughs> as you can tell, I took this very seriously, and I still do. You did. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you took it so seriously, I was like, I got to bone up on this article that he wrote, because <laughs> I didn't edit that article. Uh, my buddy Bamba Tamba, uh, who helps me out with the front page, he reviewed that article uh, before it went up. So I definitely read it cover to cover. And uh, I guess we should mention that it's up on rfgeneration.com right now on the front page. You have to scroll down a little bit yes. and a little bit more when this finally comes out. But it's your review of Battlefield 1. And I felt like it was very interesting. My question for you is this, and what I was thinking the whole time, if this wasn't something that you were so into, like say myself, I don't know a lot about World War One. do you think you would have enjoyed the game a lot more if you didn't know what you do know? I tried to make it clear in my writing, and I'll try to make it clear here, that I did enjoy the game, like mechanically, mm-hmm. at the shooting is very sound, the airplane flight was pretty cool, the tank, like Battlefield games are known for being able to jump into a vehicle and do whatever you want kind of thing. Now, they're single player campaigns they have to like shoehorn the vehicle experience into those kinds of things but i enjoyed the game from the standpoint that the graphics were great voice acting was great you know it, mm-hmm. it's a triple a game through and through it's a multi-million dollar endeavor and it's very obvious that it's a mainstream ea game and I did enjoy it. I had a really good time with it. I liked the way the game was chopped up into mini campaigns. I thought that was very innovative. And I recommend the game. I think you can still learn about World War One. You know, the developers were saying that when they pitched this game, the people they were pitching to didn't know about World War One. They were saying, like, <laughs> are we going to make people play with muskets? And, like, they didn't realize that, like... Yes, it was cutting-edge technology, but they had machine guns and airplanes and tanks and all these things. So, I mean, we're all used to playing modern warfare games or World War II games. So, as much as I have a huge gripe with the representation in this game, I am grateful that it's out there, you know. And I hope they make a Battlefield 1 Part 2, like make a direct sequel to it, because they're still supporting Battlefield 1 multiplayer, which I didn't touch on, and I'm... I know you can play as the Russians in the multiplayer, so a lot of my gripes are probably solved in the multiplayer, but I still feel like the stories that they were telling with the campaign, they owed a little bit of attention to some of the other countries that were involved. Yeah, typically with these types of games, they make them for the player who, I mean, in my opinion, doesn't know a lot about the history of these events. And and I want to say the more ignorant player, and I'm not using that in a derogatory sense. I just mean someone who doesn't know about the history. Myself would be an ignorant player going into the game. I would just be trying to finish the game. You know what I mean? They probably don't make it for people that are history buffs. But I think if you're going to do a game that's realistic, that is a timepiece for an error, I I think you really do need to do um, your legwork. And I'm sure they did, but... Like you said, it seems like they're missing quite a bit with this game. Yeah, for sure. And and again, I'm griping about the single player in a Battlefield game. That's kind of ironic, I guess, because Battlefield <laughs> is known first and foremost, like maybe even more than Call of Duty. It's known as a multiplayer game. And yeah. it's one of those things where like I went to message boards to look at like what's the possibility of single player DLC since they have these little bite-sized campaigns. It would be perfect to like add a couple the comments on there was like, why would they waste their 
damn time making single player they shouldn't have even put it in the game you know like oh man so it's like you know even the fans of the game they they want their multiplayer and that's that's all well and good that's fine with me yeah so that's what i've been playing other than our current month's game and our next month's game which i'll tell you about later So in February, we played Vandal Hearts on the PS1. Vandal Hearts is a turn-based tactical RPG. It was developed by Konami Computer Entertainment Tokyo for the PS1 and later ported to the Saturn, but it was Japan only. It was released in 1996 in Japan 1997 in North America, and also the Japanese Saturn release was 1997. It does have a sequel, Vandal Hearts 2, which is also on the PS1, and a prequel that came out not very long ago called Vandal Hearts Flames of Judgment that was created for the PlayStation Network and Xbox Live Arcade. So joining us this month in our playthrough of Vandal Hearts, we've got... As usual, Dougley007. We had our old pal Steven Disposed Hero, who's a big RPG fan and just could not put it down. We also had Metal Fro, who played with us. And I want to say that all of these people that I've already mentioned did finish the game this month. So congratulations, guys. And then Zofar53, who said he was going to play the game with us, who I didn't see if he played it or not, but he did offer some awesome insight into the game as we discussed it. So if you're out there, man, let us know if you finished the game, if you're playing it still. So Vandal Hearts. There's a very convoluted story to this game, yeah, right, Sean? It's extremely intricate. So much so that I told Sean, it's like, man, I really don't know how to introduce or start talking about this game. So the story of this game is so deep that there's like a lore to the actual story that you're playing. And I think that's what makes this very complicated. And it's going to be a huge challenge to kind of talk about because there's backstories to backstories to this game. And I... I even yeah. downloaded and read about <laughs> half of the script and it did reinforce and fill in some gaps that I had while playing the game. But my tact when I was playing this game was just to kind of pay attention to Ash and what was going on with him. And there's a lot of ancillary yeah. characters and actions and they have their own <laughs> deep lore. But I feel like if our talking about the story makes it seem complicated and convoluted, 
It's kind of because it is, but when you're playing the game and experiencing it, you're not going to get lost. It's just one of those games that's it's really hard to recount the story on the air like this. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's very convoluted, and you know, I could go through reading the wiki entry about like what happens up to the beginning of the game, but even that's like four paragraphs. So I think where we should go with this is maybe talk a little bit about what's going on when we first enter the game. There's this group, which our hero actually belongs to, called the Ishtarian Security Forces. They're sort of a force that protects all the citizens from everything that's kind of going on in the world right now. It's a very crazy and wild world where there's pirates and there's robbers out on the road. And so these guys are sort of sent out to help the villages and to sort of quell these sort of uprisings. And kind of what you got going on in the background is there's a political sort of coup d'etat that's going on. There's a defense minister by the name of Hell Spites, clever (laughs) and awesome name, right? (laughs) Who runs an anti-terrorism squad called the Crimson Guard. These are his anti-terrorist forces, which is kind of a joke in that they're sort of the terrorist. So there's these two armies that are kind of working together, but things are starting to unravel a bit and they're kind of going head to head with each other as who I would say are the good guys from the Ishtarian security forces are sort of starting to realize that what's going on isn't a good thing and that they're attacking innocent citizens who are expressing concerns but aren't really doing any type of revolting against what's going on. So we definitely have these characters who are trying to take over power. And I think you compared it like Game of Thrones, right? Yeah, and I just threw that out there as more of a buzzword than an actual comparison because I haven't read the books or seen the show. But just using it as an analog for political intrigue and murder and double-crossing, like that's what it kind of made me think that that is like. Right. And we don't just get that at the beginning of the game. This game has six chapters. And as you go throughout the game, that plot deepens and thickens. And there's even more uprising and things going on in the game. There's there's kind of surprise toward, I want to say, the fifth chapter. I may be right about that, maybe wrong. But there, there's something that happens in that area, which I'm sure we'll get to. The game really keeps you on your toes as far as the story From the beginning, there's a lot to digest. It's really thick. But even as you go throughout the game, I feel like the story's very rich. It's not an RPG like you get a story at the beginning of the game and then you get a story at the end of the game. There's not a lot in the middle. I would say that this game, and you may or may not agree with me, is very rich all the way through. No, I do agree. And and like I said, even though I kind of let that background lore fall on my deaf ears, and I did quite enjoy the political intrigue of the main story while trying not to pay too much attention to that lore. And we should mention the story is presented in two very different ways. In the main mm-hmm. story, so to speak, we have cutscenes with dialogue boxes. But then in between the chapters, there are these... FMV videos with voice acting that yeah. reads to you, you know <laughs> reads a story to you, and uh, this was one of the challenges for me because I couldn't tell you what was going on in those. They didn't do anything for me, you know. Yeah, I think that the FMV videos kind of pushed the story and kind of led you to like, okay, this chapter ended. This is where the direction of the characters is going now. So I think that those 
videos were better toward the middle part of the game, whereas the first video kind of confuses you. I feel like the in-between, they're like really nice segues to let you know kind of what's going on with the country. And I thought they were kind of nice, but again, a thick story and fairly hard to follow as you're playing through the yeah, game. Yeah, for sure. But you get these little pockets of clarity, like with Diego's backstory, with Alini's backstory. And I mm-hmm. think that's what's important as you're playing this game, because... You have a set party throughout the whole game, and you're going to want to connect with those characters when you have the opportunity, more than you're going to want to worry about the lore, quite frankly. At least that's how I felt. The cutscenes with Diego's family and with Alini and the time traveling thing, I latched on to those because I could actually tell what was going on, and I didn't have to have any background for it. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. I would say that to play the game... Just worry about that stuff, you know? No, I think that's a very valid and good point. Uh, One of the things I really like about the game is that there are multiple characters in this game. You do pick up allies as you're playing throughout the game, but each of these allies and characters has a different story path. And it's very rich. It's not like you just pick up some characters like you do in some RPGs and their story's just kind of forgotten about. For the most part, all these characters have stories that are flushed out and it makes the game very very interesting it makes you really care about these characters absolutely you also have enemy subplots that are kind of going on in little cutscenes with the enemies that are fun and neat to watch it really works well together because you're not only getting what's going on with your story but you're getting the other side and what's going on with the enemy and that's something that i really liked about this game and i don't really feel like You get that in a lot of games. I believe I've seen it in a few Final Fantasy games where you kind of get these subplots, but it's not something that's super common in RPGs. Yeah, I agree. And I I liked, again, there's political intrigue going between those characters. As you said, there's a definite power struggle, and it's interesting to see that. I'm glad they flesh that out as well as the story of the heroes. Yeah. As we mentioned, the story is very, very complicated. And I'm sure like during this podcast, you'll get bits and pieces of what's going on in the story as we talk about the different characters and we talk a little bit about the gameplay. So let's go ahead and move on into the gameplay. As I mentioned before, Vandal Hearts is a turn-based tactical RPG. But what's kind of special about this game, and it reminds me a lot of games like Shining Force, where it's very linear. There's not a lot of exploring, and in fact, in this game, I would say there's pretty much zero exploring. You kind of just go from battle to battle. You have a little more freedom in games like Shining Force. So I'm curious, Sean, I mean, how did you feel about the way that this game was set up? It's not really like your normal RPG. Yeah, I was really kind of nervous and... I don't want to say put off, but when I found out you can't grind, I I was (laughs) nervous because I like to power grind in games. And if I could have played the first battle of this game 10 times in a row to get those first three characters leveled way up, I would have. But you can't do that in this game. You just go from battle to battle. And like I said, you can't even pick your party, which is something that's very common in these kind of games. So it's very unique in that way. But as we'll discover, it could be for the better. Yeah, and uh, I think it was Dougley007 that posted somewhere in the forums. And I got to say, by the way, we had some great discussion for this game in the forums this month. It was fantastic. And Dougley said, 
hey guys, where do you go to grind in this game? <laughs> I said, you don't, brother. It doesn't happen in this game. And so I feel like in the same way, he was as nervous as you were, where you can kind of build up your characters and power through battles. But in this game, it's a lot different too, in that the mobs that you fight against, the levels of those enemies aren't set. They're based on the level of your main character. If you're going for Vandalier, which is something we'll talk about later in this podcast, that makes a huge difference in a lot of your battles. So this game, you kind of benefit from keeping your main character at a lower level than your other characters. So it's an interesting concept. It's an interesting gameplay strategy. One of the things I did want to mention was that in each battle, there are different conditions. One for the hero side, and there's one for the enemy side. And they're not always the same, which is something I thought was really cool about this game. In some areas, you just have to make it to a certain spot. And in some battles, you have to wipe out all the enemies on the screen. So there's definitely a good bit of variation in this game. Are there any specific scenes that you remember, or how do you feel about this aspect of the gameplay? Man, it's going to be hard for me and probably you, as you put in the notes, like we're not experts on tactical strategy RPGs, yeah. but we do keep playing more and more. I mean, we played the Shining Force games and I've played a few of the newer Fire Emblem games, but this is not something that I'm an expert on. So to say like, oh, they have cool objectives. I literally am wondering if other games are like that rather than saying like, oh, that's neat and different. Like, I don't know if it is. (laughs) Yeah. Um, However, I did like the mixture of, you know, in one battle you have to kill everybody. The next battle you might have to just kill a boss, but it would benefit you to kill everybody. So you got to strategize that. And then there's that one cool one, the ambush, where you have to wait and then kind of entrap the enemy and not let them get away. Like the enemy tries to run away and you have to kill them before they run away. Like I thought that was really cool and unique. And then some of them, you just have to get your party to the other side of a map to a certain field or a door or gate or whatever. Actually, in some of those battles, I took the opportunity to just do that. (laughs) Like there were a few and again, got nervous for the loss of XP that I left (laughs) on the table. But in a few of them, I just ran like hell to the exit and uh, won the day that way. So. Yeah, I felt like a lot of the battles were just very interesting. You pointed one out specifically, the ambush battle. Another one of the battles that was pretty cool was the uh, the battle with the guard dogs. And so you had six turns to basically take out all these dogs before they alerted people. And that was your condition for winning. And so you really had to strategize and you know use strategies to trap them in like certain areas, keep them from running, and determine which characters to go at them with and which paths needed to be blocked off. So I thought that this game, in that sense, had a lot of neat variation. Sometimes your party would be split up into two different halves, and so you would have to make sure that you could take out certain enemies and, and get to the other side in time to help the other party before they were dispatched. So, yeah, I thought this game has a lot of just kind of neat variation, and what I like about it most is they try to integrate that variation and those battle conditions into the story. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Like, everything is appropriately contextual, which is cool. Yeah, I think there's one scene where one of your archers who's um ends up being like one of your like more powerful archers Kira. 
Yeah, Kira, she kind of goes off, and then one of your other characters chases her to keep her from uh, harm, and so those two characters leave your party, and so you have to fight with them and sort of defend them and try to get over to help them before the actual battle ends or before they get dispatched. So, uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's a really neat game. So one of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit was turn-based movement in this game, and one of the neat aspects is that you get a lot of control over your movement. Not only that, but what you're going to do, what your action is. You get a movement and an action with each turn. And so what's neat about that is as long as you haven't done your action, which is, you know, like attack or use a spell or something of that nature, like open a chest, then what you can do is you can actually back everything up. So you're not committed to that move. And one of our players, Metal Fro, said something about this, and I thought it was really neat. And so I pulled this quote from our forums. He says, That's one thing I like about Vandal Hearts. If I move a character next to an enemy and go to attack, but I'm not seeing what I need to see, or I can't move in far enough to be effective, you can backtrack and cancel out of that series of moves. As long as you don't attack or push an object, you always have the ability to cancel and start from square one, pun intended, and work through what you're going to. As a total noob to the game, I really appreciate that aspect, and it's made easing into the genre a better experience for me. So I thought that was like a really good quote and uh, really kind of expresses what I meant about turn-based movement. I definitely, definitely am a fan of this. I don't remember if that was an option or not when we played through Shining Force, but uh, I really like this aspect of the game and just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on it. Yeah, I agree. And I think in different games, there's going to be varying degrees of how far you can go past a point of no return. And I like that you can strategize and kind of map out everything you need to do before you actually commit. And we should note the button layout in this game is Japanese style, where the circle button is your confirm and the X is cancel. So You'll get used to that pretty quick. (laughs) (laughs) You'll have to. Yeah, it did take me a long time to get really used to the menu. For whatever reason, I do have the manual, but I refuse to read the manual. So, uh, you know, (laughs) yeah, well, that's, you know, I just wanted to like try to figure it out on my own. But you're right. I didn't even think about that. I think usually um, circle for PlayStation is usually the cancellation button, right? Yeah, in, in America, yes. And that button layout, it's the same thing as in Metal Gear Solid. So I think probably a a handful of Konami games retain that from Japan over to North America. So that's pretty cool. Very cool, man. I wanted to mention something else about the game we had mentioned before, and that was like catch-up leveling, which I really like about this game. (laughs) If you, Yeah, you want to talk about that? Yeah, I had it in my notes, and I didn't even tell you. I have a full page of notes because I finished the game about... I don't know, three weeks ago. So I didn't want to forget my experience for when we recorded here. And I had a real problem for like four or five whole maps with Grog and Dolan just getting killed every time they got touched. And I was like, these guys are literally useless in this playthrough. Like what's going to happen here? But uh, much like in many RPGs, uh, notably Suicode in another Konami mm-hmm. game, as soon as they land a hit without getting killed, they'll level up like five levels and be kind of on par with everybody else. And I was like, oh, okay, like finally made that happen. They're good now. So yeah, the game is very balanced in that way. And uh, it was a lifesaver when that happened because it was like, oh man, these guys are killing me. So. <laughs> 
Yeah, I really enjoy the catch-up leveling, especially, like I said, in the Vandalier part and going for that and trying to keep Ash's level as low as possible going into those battles to make them easier. Being able to catch him up toward the end of the game was uh, very easy and he like leveled up really quick because, like you said, you could take one enemy out. Like If you got the final blow in especially, you gain more experience points for that. And if you could work it somehow or you get that final blow in, you could level up two and three times with the death of that enemy. And so that was a very nice aspect of the game. And because you couldn't grind, I thought that was kind of a way that they kept the playing field, no pun intended, even. And so you could maybe miss some things and then kind of come back by this sort of level up grinding and this idea that your main character set the level of the enemies that you are going to fight in each battle. It's really a system that I haven't seen before in a tactical RPG, though like you, I haven't played a lot of them, but I thought it really worked well and is a very smart way to set this game up. Something else I wanted to talk about in the game and the gameplay, much like the Shining Force series, and I'm, I'm sorry we keep going back to this, but this is sort of what we have to compare it to, especially for me, they have promotions in this game, and I thought those were kind of cool. You start out with these sort of basic classes of characters. There's, of course, knights. Ash is your hero class, and so you only have one of those. You have a mage class. You have a healing class. And then you have what I would probably say is a ranged class, but that can kind of change as you decide what you want to be promoted into, right? Yeah, exactly. And now I'm going to guess... Because I used a guide for my class uh, <laughs> choices. I'm going to guess that you didn't. No, I didn't really use a guide. When I was doing the um, Vandalier quest, I did have to kind of look ahead to see like what I would need for certain areas. So there's one class that I specifically had to have sure. for that. So I did make one decision based on that. But no, I, I really didn't go into it. But... And playing other games, like with my healers and stuff, I'm not a guy who likes to have characters that are like hybrids. For instance, I think you get a choice between like bishop and monk. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't go monk because I knew that that was sort of a hybrid fighting healing class. Right. And I, I, I just don't like those hybrid classes. I always like to have like strong healers because I'm always afraid I'm going to get into like a tough battle. That's just kind of personal preference for me. No, I think I'm the same way. I had all all of my classes were specialists. I didn't go with any of those hybrids either. I'm with you there. So you went with the knights instead of the, um, what? what's the uh, more defensive class? There's like a tanking class too, right? Yeah, what were they called? The uh, movie theater chaperones or something? I, I, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe so, but in some, <laughs> but I think they're called guardsmen. I believe that's it. Yeah, yeah it's guardsmen. Okay. Their movement wasn't great. Mm -hmm. And so I would say like in certain battles, I'm glad that I didn't have those characters because it would have been really tough. There's a specific fight. Uh, it's where Kira gets kidnapped and you have to save her from the lava pit. And I feel like those characters would have been completely useless there because they're so slow. Because you have to do it in so many turns, right? Yeah, you need tons of range for that map. And uh, yeah, that would have been really hairy with a bunch of slow, low-range characters. All right, so I'm curious. I mean, did you do any specific classes? It sounds like we probably went with about the same classes. 
Um, I'd have to look up the guide, but I know with the, the healers, I went both bishops. With the archers, I just kept them as archers with one exception. Don't know his name. The guy with the goggles, I made him into a Hawkman because that gives you a flying ability and a pretty much ultimate range in the game, as far as I can tell. Um, yeah. So I used him to open a lot of treasure chests that were on the fringes of the maps. But mm-hmm. other than that, not especially powerful or anything, but could definitely like do a lot of flanking kind of stuff and get around people. Yeah, not the greatest class. I mean, the defense is not great, but, you know, they hit pretty decent and they have some good movement, but it's one of those classes that you really don't want to get them alone or in any way near like a magician or something that can hit you one time and wipe you out because that can definitely happen in this game. I think I probably went about the same way as you did. I mean, you know, I went with knight classes. I didn't go guardsmen. I kept my mages, you know, mages and uh, my healers, healers. I didn't go with any kind of hybrid classes. And uh, I kept my archers except for one. And I used a different character. The character you were mentioned with the goggles, I think, is Amon. Yes. I used Darius, who was the last guy you get in the prison. I used him as my uh, Hawk Knight because you have to have a Hawk Knight in order to do the Vandalier. So I went that route as well. So I think we have to mention that promotions happen twice in the game. You get those at level 10 and then again at level 20. I felt like promotions happen fairly quick in the game. So it kind of gave the game a really nice pace It allowed you to change your lineups, and unlike Shining Force, there really aren't any penalties for leveling up your characters as soon as you get to, like, level 10 and level 20. When you get there, it seems like you automatically want to go ahead and level them up. It just makes sense to do that, because it makes them stronger. You typically get more spells and things like that for your casters, and it makes the game less challenging for you if you have them leveled up. You know, I think that's nice. I don't like when there's a hidden agenda that you don't want to level up your characters as soon as you're able to level them up. I think that's one of the more kind of frustrating things for me, you know, especially in the Shining Force series. Um, We mentioned that you have different classes, but there's also sort of this paper, rock, scissors game that's going on. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, I actually wrote it in my notes that I never used it purposely. (laughs) (laughs) so from what i remember archers are good against flying yes flying they have an advantage over ground troops as far as doing more damage and then ground troops have an advantage over ranged attackers so that's sort of the rock paper scissors triangle that's going on in this game I'm not really sure how casters fit in. I feel like they probably do a specific amount of damage. Though I did feel like enemies like golems especially that were more prone to having a lot of defense against physical melee or ranged attacks. I felt like they took a lot of damage from casters in this game. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that you should focus your magic on the most armored enemy type. So that makes complete sense. So another feature that I definitely want to mention in this game is the auto counterattacks, which I don't know how you <laughs> felt about these, but it definitely made the game more interesting as far as being able to strategize because if you knew if you hit someone, you were going to get counterattacked and then possibly when it became their turn, you were going to receive a first attack from them. So you really had to be careful with this and I don't know, man, it's something that I really didn't care for too much because it seemed to happen all the time. 
And then there were certain ranged people that would hit your ranged allies, and they couldn't counterattack for some reason. It seems like sometimes you could counterattack, and sometimes you couldn't with your ranged enemies and allies. Well, I think that has to do with their range. Oh, I see. So those guys that hurl the boulders, they can throw super far. But if your archer can't throw as far as they can, you're not going to get the counterattack. That makes total sense. Yeah. I didn't even think about it that way. So that's a great observation. Did you like the counterattack system? How did you feel about it? Were you as put off by it as I was? (laughs) So... Fire Emblem is exactly this way, Ah, so I do have a little bit of a frame of reference that you don't have from only playing Shining Force. I don't mind it. I don't have a value judgment to put on it. It's just a different way of doing it. I will say that the blocking rate is very high, so you can either take some solace in that or you can save scum the game like I did because (laughs) you can save in the middle of the map, which is a huge, huge quality of life feature that I love in this game. Battle saves are great. Yes, but you do have to be careful because you only get one save slot for the in-map save, so you got to use it wisely. But if you're in a good spot... And you know you need to land a hit, you can save before you do it. And if you get blocked, just go back to the save. It's cheating. Some people are going to really not be happy to hear me say that. But hell, I wanted to play the game and enjoy it and finish it. So yeah, the counterattack system, I found it the most frustrating when the rate of blocks seemed to be going way too much in the enemy's favor, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Especially when you go and take a risky attack, you get blocked, and then they just kill you. That pissed me off, man. I <laughs> I had some controller-chucking rage with this game because of those exact uh, situations, and that's why I started Save Scumming. I don't consider what you did cheating. I mean, it's a feature that's in the game. I mean, that's what it's for. I think in-game save is, you know, to allow you to start from somewhere that you might be having difficulty, or if you're doing really good, you can kind of save it in a safe spot and, um, you know, continue from there if you need to. It's a beautiful thing about this game, especially for me, having kids and stuff like that. Sometimes I would only be able to do one battle, and sometimes I would feel myself getting caught in the middle of a battle and just have to cut it off and then go do what I had to do and just come right back. So I think it's a really nice feature, and, you know, like I said, I feel like if it's Something that's in the game, I don't feel like it's cheating because they have to know that players have the ability to do that. Sure. I mean, I appreciate that. But if you Google save scumming, it, <laughs> it will tell you that. I'm cheating. just trying to make you feel better. Man. I know, man. Hey, dude, <laughs> you're talking to a guy who beat like 70 games last year with cheat codes just so he could roll the credits. It, it doesn't it doesn't bother me at all. But I will say as well, even if you're not save scumming, the in-map save is a total godsend because some of these maps took upwards of two and a half hours for me, especially the ones that I failed on the first couple times before I finally broke through and succeeded. The gameplay is very deep and strategic, and I was really getting into it and like thinking out every move carefully. So it can take a long time, and that being able to save in the middle of it is a big deal. Yeah. And another thing we should also mention about this game is this lack of party customization. A lot of games, such as the Shining Force games, you're able to pull characters in and out of a caravan, so you're able to pick what characters to take into battle 
in this game, you're kind of left with the hand that you're dealt, right? You have to fight with these characters. But this lack of party customization, our buddy Steven had a really great quote about that I wanted to share. And he put, I actually really like that your party's always predetermined based on the story. I always have a hard time choosing who to keep and who to cut from my active party in other games. I think that some may consider the lack of party customization to be a negative for this game, but I really don't mind it at all. Yeah, that's a great quote from Steven, and I agree with him completely. I get the same kind of like analysis paralysis when I'm trying to put a party together, and especially if it's a game I'm into and really enjoying, I want to do it perfectly. Mm-hmm. But just being like, here's your team for this scenario, go with it and make it work. Like, I really like that. And I never felt like, oh, I wish I had this person. Like, it seems like the key party members are always there. You know what I mean? You do lose Kira. Kira is a, a really good archer. You lose her for a couple maps. But again, it's, it's appropriate to the story. It's part of the story. You might miss her, but I mean, that's like the one example I can think of where I was actually missing a character because they weren't part of the party for a short while. Yeah, it's tough when when your archers goes out because I feel like in this game you use your archers so much, you yeah. use your mages so much. Your your range attackers are really really strong in this game, almost to the point of being overpowered. But uh, we'll just say that when Kira comes back, she comes back with a vengeance, man. She <laughs> she is one of the coolest archers, and her final form as an archer is pretty awesome. So uh, you got to play the game and see it just for that. But yeah, I agree with you and Steven. I mean, I like being limited to customization because I feel like a lot of times in RPGs, there's characters that I get stuck on and I just love them so much and they might not be the most beneficial character. So I think it's kind of refreshing to be restricted in this instance, which just sounds odd coming out of my mouth. But uh, but yeah, I think that lack of customization for this game is really appropriate and really nice. And uh, it didn't bother me at all. So I want to move on and talk a little bit about the key quests in this game. There is a special ending for this game, and there's a special ceremony that you can go through to get Ash to get promoted to a third tier, which is called Vandalier in this game. What this involves is finding five keys and turning these keys in to the master of the dojo, and he will teleport you to a different world And you have to fight a battle, open a treasure chest, and in each chest there's an orb. So there's 
two conditions in those battles. You're getting the orb, and then you're also defeating all the enemies on the screen to make it out of that scenario. You do this five times. Your sixth time, you have a final battle where you get a final orb, and you get to be promoted up to a Vandalier. Now, one of the things I want to mention is even though that you get these extra battles, these extra battles do not increase your experience. So that kind of stinks. So you don't get to do any sort of extra grinding in these. And you laughed at me because I told you that I had made it to the beginning of chapter two and I had been reading up on the game online and I realized that I could do these key quests and I actually reset my game, which, you know, that's probably a few hours worth of work. Yeah. And and you kind of like, I can't believe you just did that. Like, <laughs> why did you just do that? And uh, I don't know for me, you know, in playing a game like this, especially um, an RPG, it's kind of one of those games where, you know, I don't know that I'll play this game again and I may down the road, but I kind of want to get that sort of full effect. If I can do something in the game, like, for instance, comparing it to something like Suikoden, I wanted to make sure that I got all the characters in that game. I wouldn't have felt good about finishing the game with not having all the characters at the end of it. I don't know. I think it says more about my personality than anything. Maybe I'm a little nuts, but uh, <laughs> I definitely wanted to try this Vandalier quest out. And uh, it was cool. It really made the game easy sauce, like through the end of it, because where you're kind of scared to take your melee, your knights and stuff out to the front line, and especially Ash, because usually your condition is if he dies, then the map's over, you lose. Yeah. Um Man, you're not scared with this guy. I mean, you get like a hundred more hit points. You get all this like really fancy and awesome armor. He gets every spell that's in the game. Yeah. The thing about it is he doesn't get any more magic points. So you don't get a boost in that. So you can still only use like a few spells. But having three casters is just super OP. It was fun. But uh, man, the ending, it's not worth it you don't get really any different kind of ending. And I don't want to spoil the ending because I know we're going to talk about that at the end of the episode, but uh, you just get a congratulations menu that says, congratulations, you've beat this game, you know, <laughs> found like, the, you know, you found the marble in the oatmeal, you know, you get to drink from the fire hose. It's like a little certificate at the end of the game. That's really the only difference. I wish somebody would make a fake ending card with the words that you just said. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you found the marble in the oatmeal? <laughs> yeah, but the way you start, congratulations, you like kind of beat this game. <laughs> I want to see that on the screen. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, worth it? I don't know. I mean, if you're like me, it's worth it because I feel like you've accomplished something that was kind of hidden in the game because... You don't have to do this to beat the game. You know, you didn't do the Vandalier quest and, you know, you still finished the game and right. you still got the same ending that I did. But, um, you know, it's something neat thrown into the game. And I feel like it it's one of those things that gives it some replayability, you know, especially for a game back then. I can't imagine being the first one to figure all this out and figuring out that you could become a Vandalier in this game. The stuff you have to go through and the things you have to find in the most difficult places. I mean, a lot of times you have to spellbind enemies just so you can get to certain areas. Because if you beat that enemy or that enemy attacks you and you counterattack them, you can wipe them out and so the map ends. You have to do all sorts of nutty things just to get this quote-unquote good ending. So, uh, yeah, kind of neat. And I just wanted to take a little while to mention it. 
Yeah, no, I'm glad you did it, and I'm glad I didn't do it, because I watched <laughs> the YouTube video that you sent me to see how it's done and what you end up getting. Man, the costume they put on Ash when you come to Vandalier. <laughs> it's ridiculous he looks like looking. <laughs> freaking supersonic or, you know, Super Saiyan from Dragon Ball Z. It was like Dragoon um, the Hedgehog. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it was a funny thing to see, but I can tell it definitely ranks among like the most powerful characters in an RPG. So that's pretty cool if that's worth it. Now, that would be way better. That is one of the drawbacks of having a completely linear campaign. It would be cool if there was like an arena or if you could just simply replay any of the maps and, yeah. you know, prance around with your Vandalier wrecking. <laughs> that would be awesome. Or, you know, if you decided, hey, I wouldn't mind going back a few maps and collecting all this stuff so that I can do the Vandalier instead of having to start the whole game over. Oh, true. That would have been a cool feature, too. Yeah, because when you told me about it, I said, I'm not doing that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going back. Yeah, you were on Chapter 2. I was far ahead of that. And I was like, no way. I I, kind of panicked, too, because I was like, wait, do you need that to finish the game? Because I'm like, I quit if that's the case. (laughs) (laughs) well i think we should mention that too about the difficulty i mean you know you possibly don't want to restart the game because this is the type of game that starts out fairly tough and i feel like gets easier as you get into the final two chapters right yeah i agree completely it's smooth sailing especially the last battle as the very last battle is very easy so long as you realize that ash just can't move just hide him in the back (laughs) because because <laughs> like you said he's the lost condition in most of the battles so uh that final one they just are relentless with him but yeah the difficulty curve definitely slopes downward with this game so if you get past chapter four it's like smooth sailing after that yeah like we said your mages are super op you get this spell toward the end of the game called salamander which is just ridiculous and then you have one before that right that you i think you were talking about to me like we were kind of chatting and texting each other i can't remember what it's called phase shift i believe Yeah, phase shift the first time i used it i was like wait what the area of effect on this thing is the entire map pretty much like i can hit eight or nine guys in one turn and so that was like halfway through the game you get that spell i was like Holy crap, I'm just running the table here, you know? It was awesome. It definitely adds an element to the game that is overpowered, but I still feel like you have to use it at the right spots. You want to make sure that you're getting as many enemies as you can when you're doing that. That's one of the cool things is like we were talking about how you can back out of certain moves before you conduct a cast. You can make a movement and then you can select your spell and you can look at the range of that spell And if you're not getting everyone that you want to in that spell, and not as many enemies as you want, you can back it out, make another movement, hit the spell cast, and find out that spot might be a better place to cast it. Did you do any of that? Dude, like, I was super tweaking those areas of effect to see, like, if I can't get that guy, ooh, so, so what if I'm one square to the left, can I get the other guy, like... I was really intricate. I wanted to get the most out of my phase shifts and my salamanders. So, yeah, I was really working that aspect of the mages. Yeah, very cool. And something kind of related to that, did you track enemy movement in this game? This is something that I didn't figure out until the end of the game, and it just kind of blew my mind. I was like, why did I not look into this? I'll kind of explain it so you know what I'm talking about. I may be confusing you with how I'm naming it, but... 
What you can do is if you select on an enemy, especially with melee enemies, it's very useful because you can tell how many squares that they can move. It will show you their ending square. So you don't want to put someone inside of their movement area or right at the cusp of their movement area because they'll be able to attack them. So if you click on the enemy, you can look and see how many movement spaces they have and you can save a lot of hit points and a lot of damage by being able to tell where their next movement possibly is going to be and how far they can extend that out. That's a really neat feature on the game. And unfortunately, it was one that I didn't figure out to the end of the game that I could do. Yeah, I knew you could do that. I didn't lean on it too heavily as a strategy because I feel like that strategy would be more conducive to a gameplay style that you would be spreading your guys out a little bit more than I did. Whenever I could, I moved my entire party in one big mass around the map, especially if the map was kind of narrower. Like there's one where you're in this like satanic pit and there's all kinds of demons in it in the middle, but it's just a long corridor. So I had the whole party go up to the right side of it and just kind of lurch their way towards the end. So I wasn't paying too much attention to the enemy's ranges and I'm actually thinking right now, because I was talking about like those guys that threw the boulders at you, they were a pain in the ass, man. And I think probably <laughs> would have been useful to use that to see how their range was. But I feel like they could hit you from anywhere on the map. It was so annoying. Yeah, and it was probably less useful because it only tracked movement. It didn't really track attack range. So, oh, okay. So, so that they could move help. into a certain area. It didn't really help because their attack range was so far. Right, know? right. But it really mainly helped with melee and to somewhat an extent with casters, if you kind of knew what the range was on the things that they typically cast. There's magicians toward the end that did those tornadoes were a beast. And so I was able to track some of that and that helped out a lot in the game. Okay, cool. Speaking of characters and enemies especially, one thing that I mentioned about the gameplay, and I had a little bit of discussion on the forums about, it's probably my last post, was the enemy AI in this game. Yes. In a lot of RPGs, what's going to happen is your enemies are just going to attack the closest person that they can attack. In this RPG, they tend to work on weaker characters to satisfy the battle condition. We mentioned a lot of times you have to keep Ash, your main character, back because a lot of times the battle condition is based on whether he survives or not. What the AI does is it specifically focuses on that character, but then it also focuses on characters that maybe have weaker hit points. So if they see that one of your characters is damaged and two or three of them can make a hit on a certain character to wipe that character out, that's what the AI is going to do. It's very smart in this game. And so in the same sense that when you're playing it, you're going to try to weaken a group of characters, maybe with magic, and then go in and try to take them out with either ranged or melee if you can. So I really like the way that this game set up the AI, and I thought it really did a nice job of establishing the gameplay and making it as difficult as possible, but not making it too difficult. And so you kind of knew what was going to happen, but you had to be on your toes and you had to be really careful in this game. Yes, I agree. And you put it very nicely because my impression of the AI as I was playing the game was that they were relentless, like the word relentless kept popping into my head. But as you just 
pointed out, that's not exactly true. They're selectively relentless kind of when they can be. I like what you said about how that balances the difficulty, because if they actually were relentless, the game would kind of be a lopsided pain in the ass. Yeah. But what it really is, is it's balanced in that if you strategize around the win-loss conditions and understand that the enemy AI is doing the same thing, you can come up with some really unique and creative strategies to beat each map. And it's really cool. Absolutely. All right, so moving on from the gameplay, let's talk a bit about the characters and graphics in this game. And and I say that because it sort of goes hand in hand. Uh, the sprite work in this game is pretty awesome. But uh, let's talk about some of our favorite characters in the game. I'll let you start first, Sean. Yeah, so I really liked both of my mages. That would be Alini and Zohar. And I was posting Alini all over Twitter because she's my <laughs> waifu. <laughs> I knew this was going to come up in this conversation. <laughs> yeah, well, this is by request of the community. They, <laughs> they and let me-, me just say that I did not look it up in preparation for this call. I want you to educate me on what this means. Okay. Well, I mean, as you can probably surmise, it's mostly from anime Uh You got a girl in an anime that you just really love, and she's your waifu. (laughs) It's a little piece of fandom. Okay. Uh, Like Mikasa from Attack on Titan was my waifu for a while, and Alini in this game is definitely my waifu. And if you're a woman in real life, you can have a waifu or you can have a husbando. But yeah, it's just a little cute anime fan thing. Okay. So this is an actual like anime term. Yeah, it's, you know, slang, you know. All right, cool. So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Alini is one of my favorite characters, and it's actually because I really liked her sprite. I liked her story eventually, but I kind of latched on to her because she has a really cute sprite. She has these kick-ass spells. Oh, I, yeah. I kind of found the spells with her before Zohar because she leveled up quicker in my playthrough. So as much as I like Zohar too for the same reason, I liked her and I liked the cool like time traveling side story that she had. And I noted in my notes about the graphics in general that the character portraits they were less anime to me and more like a western like a Hanna-Barbera kind of cartoon and I wonder <laughs> yeah. if you agree with that because we're We're used to seeing in RPGs, especially Japanese RPGs, obviously, the character portraits tend to be to varying degrees of anime-ness, you know what I mean? So I thought it was kind of cool that these looked a lot more Western to me, and Alini's sprite was very cute, and uh, she ended up just being that female character in the game that I latched onto. I usually find one of those (laughs) in in a lot of the (laughs) games that I play, so that's why Alini's my waifu. Very cool, man. Yeah, I really liked uh, the character sprites in this game, and I do agree with you about there wasn't anything very Japanese about these character sprites. They're very Western in the appearance. As far as favorite characters for me, even though he like irritated me a lot, I really like Grog because the name Grog Drinkwater is so awesome and piratey, and like he was just kind of like a wild man, like disheveled hair and. Uh, just a really cool character, and he really gets strong as the game goes on. I don't know, man. The, the animations, especially with the guys with the swords, are really awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't believe how much love was put into this game. 
everybody has a different action when they attack. Even though they're the same class, the archers look very similar in how they fire their bows and arrows. But the character sprites in this game are so good. I couldn't believe it. Again, comparing it to Shining Force, how the character portraits change. And I and I always thought that was a cool portion of that game. But this, man, the attack actions are like Dolan, like how he like flips around, just does like that kind of spinning sword attack. It's so cool. I just can't believe that they varied the attack animations that much for each character. It really personalizes them and, and gives them, without a better word for it, it gives them more character. You know, it makes them really stand out. It seems that no one was really forgotten in this game. Yeah, I liked it a lot, too. I think the flourishes and the attention to detail really shone through in the presentation here with those attack animations. And it appropriately reminded me a lot of Suikoden because in that game, there's a lot of great and sometimes funny attack animations. Mm -hmm. I would say Suikoden does it way better than this game. But in this game, it's cool that they're there. And uh, I appreciate that kind of going the extra mile from a animation standpoint now let's talk for a minute about the coolest animation in the game and you gotta know what i'm going to be referring to on this hell yeah (laughs) (laughs) this is something that you notice from the very beginning of this game if you had to put an esrb sticker on this game you'd have to throw an m on it because wow (laughs) i mean what did you do the first time you saw this in a fight well, I hate to say I saw it for the first time a long time ago in a YouTube video. Oh, so okay. I knew it was coming, but yeah, it's so satisfying. What about you? You experienced it in game? Yeah, I oh, did for okay. the first so time. So what did you were your kids with you? Uh I don't remember if my kids were with me at oh, the time. Okay. I don't think so, not in the first <laughs> map. But my son watched me play this whole game. He he loved watching me play this, by the way. He came in like after the restart, though, um, and started watching. But I looked over at him after it happened, and I saw his eyes were just huge because, you know, he's six. And so he's like, whoa, Dad, was that a blood geyser that just shot out of that guy? (laughs) I'm like, yeah, dude, that's pretty awesome. He's like, whoa, that's so cool. And I was like, yeah. Yeah, there's this blood geyser that flies out of enemies on your killing blow. And it doesn't matter if it's a sword or if it's an arrow, it happens. And it is so awesome. And it has the best sound effect. I mean, it's like, (laughs) and, you know, we were talking about the beginning of the call, how I love these ninja and old kung fu flicks. And part of what I really love about them is just the fighting, like sounds and things like that. And then also, like some of them actually have these like blood spray sounds and animations in them too, which is just phenomenal. One of our members, Zofar53, he had a great quote for this. He said, I love the violence in this game. I like how every hit you score feels heavy and significant with sound effects to match. And the blood fountains when you kill someone are so comically absurd that they still make me literally laugh out loud. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Yeah, it's true. And so satisfying like you said the combination of that with the sound effect 
this game has such a like conditioning effect on me. Like when I heard that clank of the block, I would get so pissed, you know, but then <laughs> just dance up. Yeah. Yeah. But on the other hand, when I heard that blast of blood coming out of somebody's neck, I was just like thrilled. Like, yes, I got him. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we should also mention too, the golems just explode <laughs> little rocks yeah. all over the screen. Just in their own special way, they have a death animation. So, that's true yep and with magic they just kind of evaporate or kind of disappear so that's a little disappointing yeah. <laughs> to be honest <laughs> i mean you go from blood spray to disappearing yeah there's a little disappointment in that but uh one of the coolest features that i've ever encountered in a video game and I'm not one of these people that loves violence, but with this, it's so funny, it's so comical and ridiculous that it, it kind of puts a bit of a smile on your face when you're playing the game. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about the artwork for this game. We don't always do that, and in artwork, I'm kind of referring to the case, but it's something that I really noticed on this game that I thought was pretty neat, and I uh, just want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I really think this artwork stands out. And you posted actually in the forum, I believe, mm -hmm. the Japanese one. Yes, I did. Which is on the CD, too. Right. This is one of those cases, you know, a lot of times we say, oh, the Japanese artwork is so much better. Why did they ruin it for North America? But then on the other hand, in this case, we got some really beautiful artwork on the North American front cover. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. They did a really, like, bang-up job. I actually posted on my Instagram just a picture of the artwork as a post a month back, and it, it was really nice-looking, even without the title of the game on the screen. Since you're talking about the artwork, I actually want to give a shout-out to uh, Jason from GameRave TV. I've mentioned him before. He's a friend of the site, friend of the show, great YouTube channel, great website about PlayStation 1 collecting. He has a really cool video about how the PlayStation 1 double disc case is like the best packaging in the history of video games. <laughs> he makes a really cool case for it, pun intended. Even though this game is one disc, but you still get to open it from both sides. There's a lot of surface area. There's artwork on the inside and the outside. And then you got the manual. Sometimes you have multiple discs. It was a really cool, like, romantic thing. It's an old video on his YouTube channel, but whenever I have one of these games, when I'm playing one, I just like to sit it on the table in front of me, and it's just sitting there, and they look so good in the collection. I just had to bring that up. Oh, no, I do the same thing. I sit my game, like, right beside the console where I'm playing it. I might have to argue that I do get a little annoyed when I buy a double disc game that's only one CD because it takes so, so much room on my shelf. And because a lot of times I use CD towers and things like that to house my games, there's usually not a lot of spaces for double CD. So it makes it a little tough when collecting and uh, presenting those games. That's totally fair. And our listeners will be relieved to know that Vandal Hearts 2 is in a single jewel case. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
Alright, so let's talk about the music and sound a little bit in this game. The soundtrack was done by Hiroshi Tamawari, who also did the soundtrack for Vandal Hearts 2, and was the secondary on Suikoden. The uh, composer for Suikoden was Miki Higashino, who was actually the secondary on the game we played. So these guys sort of work in conjunction with each other. I'm curious, Sean, what do you think about the soundtrack of this game? I really love the music in this game, and I listen to the soundtrack outside of playing the game just to get a good grip on what I would say here. And uh, it's good and grand. Man, it's hard for me to put into words. It's out of the ordinary. Like, I don't think you could slap this music on any old RPG. It really fits the aesthetic of the game. We talked about the attention to detail, but playing this game from 1997... The music just really fits the mixture of newfangled 3D graphics with sprites. It just kind of fits that gritty tone and the political intrigue and everything else. It's really unique, and I loved the music in this game. Yeah, I agree. It's very aggressive, and it's got this sort of orchestral sound, like battle orchestral. Yeah. A lot of classical music you'll listen to, like, for instance, like Wagner. There's something very aggressive about that style of music, and it sounds like a battle theme or a battle tone. So it really meshes well with the game and fits it very nicely. I did want to mention Hiroshi Tamawari, what he's doing now. He didn't do a lot of video game stuff, and it's kind of hard to believe because he was a secondary on Suikoden, and then he also did this great music for Vandal Hearts. And so after Vandal Hearts 2, he disappeared, and you can find some information about this online. But now his latest creation, and Sean, I think you're going to like this, is that he does this unorthodox opera called Vocaloid Opera AOI. And it's basically this live musical featuring like classic Japanese bunraku puppets singing Vocaloid over music, which is influenced by like modern techno and traditional Japanese stylings. I got to tell you, man, you got to check out a video on YouTube of this guy and what he's doing now. It's like the craziest and like most bizarre thing to put old style Japanese puppets singing sort of traditional songs with like a techno beat to it. It's really bizarre, but kind of a cool and neat thing to check out. That sounds awesome. I will definitely look into that. I knew you would appreciate that. That definitely had to include it on this show. So with the music and sound, I feel like we also have to talk about the voiceover in this game. Yeah, much like in the way I was saying that those story elements didn't really stick with me. I I don't know. I didn't feel like they were out of place or shouldn't have been included in the game. But I don't know. I didn't love them. I know. I think that you're going to say they made a good transition. And that may be true, but... I feel like they were too different in presentation from the sprites talking to each other with text boxes. You know what I mean? But this was very common at the time. It's a mix of emerging technologies like coming together. Mm -hmm. They had to use what they had at the time. So I understand it. It's very common from this era. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. I thought that the mingling of the voiceovers and like the character text box and the scenarios that were going on inside the actual chapters of the game, I thought it matched very poorly. I, I didn't really care for it. It was like this very pompous like reading of, <laughs> of this right. history and these dialogues, and it just didn't really fit. And 
I felt like even the animations were very clunky. You've got one style that's very sort of realistic in these cutscenes, and it really doesn't fit with the style of animation that's in the game, and it just came off as very weird. I had sent a message to Steven about this on the forums, and we discussed it because we played a game called Medieval for the PlayStation, and it does sort of the same thing. But it works because they kept the same art style. It was very cartoony. The actual gameplay of the game looks exactly like the characters in the transitions between the different chapters of the game. So it really, really works well in Medieval. But I felt like it was lackluster in Vandal Hearts. And like you, I felt like it was just sort of a forced technology. You know, it's like, we can do this, we should use it. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, back then it was like, I mean, think of like Parasite Eve or Final Fantasy VII, like having those FMV videos was like a really big deal, you know, and they really put a lot of effort into those. So I guess that's what they were trying to do here. Yeah, just kind of a sign of the times. Yeah. Final thoughts. What did you think about the ending of this game? I thought the ending was good. I don't have, I'm not going to have major opinions on it. I don't remember it that well. I'm going to leave it more to you to explain it. I know Ash sacrifices himself. But then there's like a little stinger at the end that he might. Ah, uh, see, I be thought you would there. be furious about this. Actually, <laughs> I thought you would be really stancy on this. Yeah, I don't know if I'm furious about it, but it's it's. <laughs> Uh, I don't want to spoil another game that we talked about in a different show, but it, yeah, same principle, kind of. Like, if you're going to commit to that, commit to it. Right. It, it didn't aggravate me that much. And again, it, it involved the leanie, so it was kind of cute. So I'll let it slide. What was your take on the ending? Uh, I didn't like it. Okay. I thought it was good for my kids. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, <laughs> okay. But my son was like, are you sure that's who it is? You know, are you sure? I'm like, he's playing the ocarina and it says, oh, it's you at the end. And I'm okay with the main character sacrificing himself to save the world and just ending there. I think that's a beautiful ending to a game. I don't feel that there was any need for him to come back. One of the problems is, is that it tried to create an air of mystery about it. Like, is it really him? Is it really him? And it just didn't work. Obviously, it's him. Like, why are you not showing him coming back? She even says, like, oh, it is you, you know? And I don't know. Like, why not show him? Yeah. If you're going to do that, commit to it, like you said. I was kind of dumbfounded by the ending there. So, one final question before we wrap up. I just want to know for you, for someone who's played, I believe, several PS1 RPGs, sort of how this ranks for you on the console? Oh, man. 
I believe it's the first strategy RPG, but just as far as it being a turn-based thing on the PS1, man, it's pretty high up there. I mean, thinking about Suicoden and mm-hmm. Suicoden 2, <laughs> there's <laughs> there's got to be other ones. I'm drawing a blank. Uh, I've played many, trust me, but I think as far as a PS1 collection, this is really a must-have. If you like RPGs and you like strategy RPGs, you might be getting something different than you're used to if you're a strategy RPG regular, but I still think it belongs in your PS1 collection. And still pretty affordable game if you want a physical copy. Absolutely. All right, let's uh, get our final thoughts on the game. I'll let you start. Yeah, so we did really well, I think, so far this year. Um, if you listen to our previous episode, I think we both thoroughly enjoyed Oxenfree. And Vandal Hearts is an amazing game. I really, really loved it. I had such a good time with this game, even when I was raging and throwing my <laughs> controller. I was trying to explain it to my wife that this game, more than any other game I've played in a long time, you really feel the thrill of victory and you really feel the agony of defeat. And I really love that about that game. The emotions were high one way or the other when I was playing this game. And some of the things we talked about in the show that were kind of unconventional that I didn't think I would like, I ended up really liking, as we've discussed, the linear nature of the game. No grinding. Set parties. You can't adjust your parties. Counterattacks. Right, the counterattacks. But then they did all these things in a way that was just enjoyable. Like we said, they did the character class upgrades in like a perfect way that just is very balanced and paces the game very well. One thing we didn't even get into is the economy of this game and the menus. Like you go to Mm -hmm. towns between the maps and there's a menu system. You can go to a tavern to get extra dialogue in every town. But the economy of the game, like you were saying, you get gold for every enemy that you dispatch and you lose gold for every ally that you lost in the battle. In the entire game, and I wasn't doing that great. I didn't save scum to save characters. Um, So I went through maps losing characters like here and there. Not a ton, not more than half, let's say, except for some very, very hard maps that I just got through by the skin of my teeth. And I still, through the entire game, had enough money to buy everything in the game. So I think the economy, if it's not just fair, it might be even a little too easy. But I found that to my benefit. You know, I like that part of it. The other thing, too, is... The script and localization, not the best thing in the world, but it's not bad. It's good. A lot of games from that era have really shaky localizations, but this one's okay. I tweeted a picture of Ash saying, we're not in Kansas anymore, and I kind of took issue with that. But other other than that one particular (laughs) line that I thought was kind of ill-advised in this game, uh, the localization was fine. And I just really, really love this game. I had such a good time playing it. It was the kind of game that I was thinking about it when I wasn't playing it. I was like, oh, what's the next map going to be like? Is it going to be some weird thing with a bridge? Or is it going to have like a water thing like the other one had? Like, And I really felt smart playing this game because I'm pretty analytical, but I'm not super strategic. And I really felt like I was sharpening some part of my intellect by playing this game. And I really appreciated that. So high recommendations, high marks, thumbs up, love the game. We're two for two so far this year. I'm really glad you picked this, Rich. Highly recommend. 
yeah, I gotta say, I'm with you on this, man. I love this game. I've loved both games that we've played this year. As far as a tactical RPG, really the only thing I have to compare it to is the Shining Force series, which I've done several times during this call. I gotta say, man, it's on par with those. It's a game you don't hear about, and I may make a few people angry, but uh, I probably enjoyed myself just as much, if not more, with Vandal Hearts than I did with Shining Force. I think the characters are rich. I think you get a story with each character, so they become more familiar. They become more dear to you than, say, a game like Shining Force. The Blood Fountains, I mean, you know, it's so cool and it yeah. gives it so much character. Being linear and not traveling from town to town, I mean, that's almost a relief to some sense. I yes. mean, so you don't have to go and find things. You just get to battle. You just get more story and more story. And, uh, yeah, it's what really, really makes this game special. I know some of the gameplay elements, like the counterattacks, were really frustrating to me at first. but I really appreciate the learning curve and having to learn playing this game and trying different things. Have to start over a few battles, losing a lot of characters in some battles. And like you, if I lost a few characters, I didn't start up a map over. I didn't try to be perfect in this game. But I got to say, it really, really does a good job of drawing you in and making you think more and be better with each battle considering what the battle conditions are for each battle and not always doing what you would normally do in an RPG. I think there's something special about that. This game was very well thought out, you know, well loved. Even some of the battles where you have only so many moves, I can't imagine what it was like to try to come up with those battles and to make it so that you win basically by the skin of your teeth in each of those. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's brilliant. It's a very brilliant tactical RPG. If you don't have this in your PS1 collection, it's worth owning. It definitely retains its status as a cult classic. It is a great game that I feel like anyone into RPGs should play. It's really rich with a lot of things that we love so much about RPGs. So yeah, give it a try. Nice. Very well said. Now, I, I got to kind of reach out to the community and especially like people like Steven, who I know play a lot of these types of games. I want to play more strategy RPGs, but I want to play more that are like this game. And I don't know yeah. if this game is too unique that if I tried something else, it wouldn't be as good, which is, hey, that's no reason to not play more games. But I mean, I can always play Vandal Hearts too. But one of the beautiful things about Vandal Hearts 1 is that it's about 20 hours long and I hear Vandal Hearts 2 is more than twice that. So yeah, I want to know from the community, like people who have played Vandal Hearts and other strategy RPGs, what would you recommend for us? I've heard good things about Final Fantasy Tactics and all kinds of other games that are out there. So let us know, tweet at us, put it on the forum, you know. And I want to mention, before you get too high on wanting to play Vandal Hearts 2, it is a different strategy type of game. It's more real-time so that the enemies move in a real-time sequence. It's not turn-based. Right, right. So what you have to do a lot of times is if you're attacking an enemy, sometimes you'll move to a spot and attack, and then that enemy will move out of the way. So my understanding, it is a different type of game. It can be a more frustrating type of game. 
But from what I understand, there are a lot of people who are on board and, and really enjoy that game too, but don't expect the same experience, right? Sure. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to be playing in March, Sean. You're hosting, so I'll let you go at it. Sure. Hoping to go three for three. I'm about halfway through this game. I don't think it's going to be the blockbuster, over-the-moon kind of feeling that we've had with the first two games, but this game is awesome. It's Transformers Devastation. It's a Platinum Games-developed Transformers game. So if you like Transformers, if you have nostalgia for Transformers, and you like running around, hack-and-slash-beat-em-up type of gameplay, it's really cool. So join us for that one. Rich, this was on your list, actually, and you had an Xbox 360 copy, but you went ahead and upgraded? <laughs> I did. I did, surprisingly, right? I'm not going against what I said about playing the original game. Because oh, no, that's just a port, like an up-res. Yeah. It's not even an up-res, it's just a different And they came out platform. at the same time, yes. so I can't be accused of uh, not uh, wanting to do it. But yeah, I um, picked this game up for PS4, I had it on 360, but I was like, well, I kind of want to have the most visual experience I can have, and my PS4 is down on my big TV downstairs, and... Uh, I don't know, man. I just really enjoy playing my PS4 now. I've really gotten into it recently, as uh, you can tell by the uh, list of what I've been playing. And uh, just wanted to check it out on that. I'm excited because it's not any of the Transformers that are based on any of the movie franchise, the Michael Bay stuff. It's based on the cartoon that we all grew up on. Right. And so uh, that's really cool and really appealing to me. I cannot wait to play as Grimlock, my favorite Transformer of all time. So, uh, nice. yeah, really looking forward to that, man. Yeah, you're going to like it. It's a cool game, and uh, our forum members will like it because many of them are of the age where these Transformers will be very nostalgic. And as I'm playing this game, I'm imagining what it would have been like to see or play this game when I was five or six years old. So I appreciate it from that aspect, and I can't wait to play it and talk about it with you and the rest of the community. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll wrap up the show. Thanks for listening and for participating in the playthrough. In March, jump into your underoos and grab a bowl of your favorite sugar bomb cereal as we dive into the best toy commercial, I mean cartoon show of our childhood. It's Autobots versus Decepticons as Optimus Prime and his friends vie to protect the Earth from Megatron and Platinum Games' rock'em, sock'em, action-filled title, Transformers Devastation. Log on to rfgeneration.com to participate. Thank you as always for listening, and we'll see you next month on the Playcast.
Alright. Get to pronounce a Japanese name, too. Hiroshi Tamawari. Perfect. That was good. I can't yes. be able to do that again. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I have it there so I can replace my other one when I get up here in a minute. <laughs>